Clubhouse. I don't even know where to begin. I covered up a crime. I destroyed evidence. I lied to the police. I told Adam to lie. You did it all to protect Adam. Yeah. Then that's all you got to say to me. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime's Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing part 20, the finale of Your Honor. Tonight's episode was written by showrunner and executive producer Joey Hartstone and was directed by Rosemary Rodriguez. You'll recall Rosemary directed the last episode, part 19. And if you guys remember, we have an excellent interview with Joey Hartstone that we've already published. Please go back and listen to that one because he gives a lot of great insight into the entire series, but also the finale itself. Um, Now that you've seen the finale, hopefully you've watched it, then you know we're not going to go step by step and recap this episode. But we're definitely going to talk to you about all the different important parts and point out things that Joey pointed out to us. And just a community note, if there's things that you want to talk about, go over to Facebook and join us on Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all the things Your Honor with us and the other fans. All right. It would be silly to say that we're publishing this in any kind of timely fashion after (laughs) the finale aired. Do we have to give the explanation of why we're so bad about finales every time? We'll give the Cliff's Notes version. Caroline and I are very... (laughs) bad about recording the finale episodes of TV shows that we cover for whatever reason and there are a myriad of reasons you can go back and listen to any show that we've ever covered that has ended you will hear a version of this speech the (laughs) month to two months after the finale aired that we're finally getting around to putting out the episode it's always apologetic and we always mean well we're we're not intentional no we we gave you Joey yes we gave you Joey instead but here's the deal you guys at the heart of it it's that we fall in love with these characters and we really hate to say goodbye to them and so it's difficult to have this last conversation about them so we continue to talk about them up until we publish a finale so we've been talking about this finale for the last two months because they are living in our hearts and the second we publish this it's like the show goes away for us and so that's always hard Uh, you ever hear we've we've heard joey you know i I think when you hear when you listen to the interview we did with him also you know there's a path to where a third season of this show exists if showtime was so inclined but it probably wouldn't be with brian cranston uh, at least not in a kind of in front of the camera regular role so it would be something else but i think there are ideas there but until that happens this is really this is it this is our final (laughs) final time to talk about the show which also leads to one of my own personal things about finales we spend a lot of time watching these shows talking about these shows and all the shows that we do we don't cover a show that we're not going to be intensely into or at least i i don't cover shows 
unless I'm going to write five pages of like tightly spaced notes about it every single week, because that's just how I like to watch TV and consume TV and talk about TV. So part of that is sometimes you miss things. Sometimes you need the next week's episode so you can get on the microphone and say, hey, I missed this thing or I was thinking more about what we were talking about in last week's episode. We don't get to do that with the finale. <laughs> this is last <laughs> licks, final bites at the apple, our last chance to get it all out. And I know the second we stop recording, I'm going to be like, God damn it. There was a thing I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, there's no take backs on this. And and also it forces us to have to go back in our brains and remember all of the things that we talked about with you guys over these seasons and try to remember all of those things, which can be a difficult process for us to remember all the comments and all the all the feelings we had about everybody. So we always want to do a good job for you guys. So let's get started, Mike. Let's dive in. What did you think about this finale? Did it work for you? Was it one of those where you where you turn off the TV and you throw your head back and you're like, Bleh. Or were you like, yes? One of the reasons I like penultimate episodes of television shows so much is because historically, over the life of television, I feel like the second to last episode almost always lands and does the job better than the actual finale. A good series finale is almost impossible to get because everyone has their own competing thoughts on what should be answered, what shouldn't be answered, what should be resolved, what shouldn't be resolved. How do you end the story of a serialized story without the fifth act cliffhanger that you will come back next week to watch for? You don't do that here. You have to resolve your story to some degree or you piss off fans. So penultimate episodes have that job of the last time you get to in the finale, this is what's going to get answered. So I like those episodes because they're almost always fantastic. This finale, I think, did a great job of resolving all of the major things that at the end of the day, I think I cared about. It resolved it in a way that I found believable and or personally satisfying, maybe not for everyone. And I, and I think there are some characters that we should discuss about whether or not they got the cosmic justice and karma that they so richly maybe deserved. I think Joey and Rosemary and the entire writer's team, and I think all the creatives and actors in front of the camera really brought this show in for a landing. After watching it again, not having seen it now in a couple of weeks and coming back and watching it, still liked it, still really, really liked it. I think they did a fantastic job. I agree with you so much. I have seen this finale so many times and you'd think that the tension would wear off, that the anticipation, that the that the twist uh, that happens in the courtroom would be lessened every time. But for me, it wasn't. I mean, everything that happened, it hit with just as much impact the, mm -hmm. the third, fourth, fifth, 20th watch um, as it did the first time. And that's really hard to do, especially again for a finale where you're like closing stories out. It's hard to be like shocking sometimes that that sticks with you. That actually works as a shock when you watched it later. Fia learning in real time in the courtroom about Adam being the yes. one who killed her her brother. Ever, again, I've seen this episode probably seven times now. <laughs> and, and even watching it today, I knew it was coming. And it was a question that we had asked for two seasons about when she was going to find out. And still, it coming out in all the courtroom scenes still really hit wonderfully for me. But watching her pick up her stuff and, and have to leave and then cutting right to the house where she's packing up her stuff and like, you're a liar, just like your son was. And then literally the next day back in court, then learning her father, who she's sitting next to, lied about the gas leak. Like, just all of these things still hit on the sixth, seventh, eighth watch of the sh of the episode. That mm -hmm. is a testament to a, a well done, uh, well done show and a well done episode. 
Absolutely. I think that Joey should pat himself on his back. I mean, I really think that he did a wonderful job. And again, please go back and listen to that interview because he really shed some light on the choices that they made, um, really deliberate things that you guys are going to see in the finale that you'll be like, oh, I didn't even realize they did it that way. You know, just give you some idea of what they were thinking about as they were making these choices. And I think it really adds to the show when you get a chance to know what was the showrunner thinking or what was the writer or creator thinking. And in Joey, you get multiple of those, which is wonderful. Before we get into specific characters or episode themes or plot lines, I got to ask you, does anyone still bronze their baby shoes? I don't think so. I mean, I think that you're doing really, really good if you have a pair of those old fashioned type shoes. I think that was like the bigger like, wow, like he actually had those really old fashioned ones. Those are the type that like my sister wore. I don't think I had a pair like that. And so she is about 10 years older than me. So I was quite surprised that Adam, who I would consider quite young, I mean, he was only in high school, that he would have a pair of those super old traditional baby shoes. And then, of course, that they went through the trouble of bronzing them. I was like, wow, I have no idea where you would get where you would go to do that anymore i don't know i mean i I, this is the beginning of the episode in case you're wondering where we're talking about one of the things they're uh senator grandma michael and fia are going through adam's things they're opening up the boxes and they pull out a pair of his baby shoes that have been bronzed and man it hit me with such a wave of nostalgia my grandmother in on her uh her uh, like dresser you know, area in her bedroom, which had like the mirror. I'm mm-hmm. forgetting what the word would be called for that piece of furniture. It was a, with a dresser with a big mirror kind of attached to it in the back. Um, right. She had like, you know, her like jewelry box and all that kind of stuff. And on it for her entire life, because she lived with us my entire life, she had my mom's baby shoes sitting there bronzed. It was just a picture in my house that I have not thought about in easily... 30 32 years and man it hit me like a mac truck of like nostalgia and thinking about my grandma and those baby shoes so mm-hmm. and i guess that's the reason that you do them right it's to get yes. evoke that kind of memory yeah for certainty i mean my parents were not great about like baby books and um those types of things it's funny because generationally you're so right the the grandmothers my grandmother made a beautiful scrapbook for my mom it had Every school picture in it with every school report card next to it on every page and like every first day of school picture, all that kind of stuff. I mean, now this is back when, you know, we didn't have phones and all this kind of stuff because where these pictures are not so easily accessible. So the fact that she put this all together and gave it to my mom, I mean, super cool. My own mother, that did not (laughs) not trickle down. I have nothing. I don't have anything like that. I have a couple of things that I like hung on to myself that was like, this was a little bear I made myself in like sixth grade grade in sewing class like those are the types of like little guy stuff i have but i don't know do you have a lot of that type of sentimental stuff around i mean the exact same boat as you my grandmother had my mom's baby shoes bronzed her entire life god knows where they are now there's not a picture of me that exists prior to the age of 16 that only exists because of people in high school who had taken pictures and group photos that i have been able to get a hold of over the years i don't exist in this world as far as i'm aware prior to the age of 16 when i was a junior in high school so there you go there you go (laughs) 
Yeah. That's I not mean, true, actually. Know, that's not actually true. I, I'm sorry. I actually still have a book I stole from the library when I was uh, in second grade. It, it, very, it was an accident. It was an what accident. Happened? I was doing a report on constellations in sure. second grade. So I went to the public city library in Queens, my the Flushing Branch, and I took out this wonderful <laughs> book. I think it was by H.A. Ray. It was a wonderful book about constellations that in a very easy to understand manner for second graders or for 45 year olds like myself um, about the different night skies that uh, appear in the different hemispheres at the different times of the year. Wonderful book. I loved it. I cherished it. I finished with a report and I just never returned it to the library. Now, not great, Michael. I understand, you know, shake your wag your fingers at me. I, I, I know this is some bad camera, but here's the thing. I lived in fear of going back to the library because I had this contraband that I was not willing to part with. It was seven years before I returned to the library. Oh my God. Think of all the books you could have read and all the great stuff. This is why I've read no children's books. You always write me about not having read children's books. It was, I was on the <laughs> lamb from the public library system. So I, I, I couldn't avoid it. I couldn't avoid going to the library finally because I had to do a report. I was in eighth grade. So I was actually, I guess, a, a, a six-year absence from the library. I, I was doing a report in eighth grade. I had to use the library. I was ready. I had come with money. I had like I had like <laughs> I had like $25 I had gotten from my parents because I had told them I'm gonna have to pay some kind of library fee. I had no idea what it was. I, I had no idea. I thought they you know they were gonna like take my passport. Right. Um yeah, like a nickel. <laughs> So I go in there and I said, I don't have my library card. We played a real cool, real eighth grade cool. Like, I, I'm probably not in the system. It's been a long time. I wasn't even using the Flushing branch. I had actually gone down to the Main Street branch, oh uh, which was a larger library, which actually had it. But it was also like maybe they wouldn't recognize my face if there was like a wanted poster in the Flushing branch. I was like, I don't have my library card. It's been a long time since I've been here. She's like, oh, no problem. She's we completely redid the systems about three years ago. So all old records were purged. So you would have to get a new card anyway. I was in the clear. What luck. Do you still own the Constellation book? I do. <gasps> Whoa. I do. I do. I love it. I, I love do. that. Yeah. So beyond that, that, that stolen contraband uh, from the city. And uh, yeah, I, I nothing, nothing, nothing from my childhood. From childhood. Nope. So yeah, I mean, it's all random stuff, but it's certainly nothing's bronzed. Nothing's beautiful. <laughs> you know, I appreciated that they added this detail of going through Adam's things because without having Hunter, the actor on set at all for this, for this entire season, you know, it's easy to forget about Adam and it's really easy to like take the personal side away from it by showing things like his baby shoes and the baseball and talking about him and his stuff. Like I really felt like they managed to bring like his spirit and remind us, remind us of the fact that he was the the judge's little boy, you know, his little baby with the little bronze shoes. Remember why this was all here, why it all started. The other thing that came out of that scene that really hit me, and it hit me because it was something that we've talked about a bunch on and off over two seasons, but in this particular episode, it became important again. Weaving through and connecting the series was the baseball, uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the Mariano Rivera signed baseball. And it, it, it hit me. Probably not for the first time, but I guess obviously for the last time, the baseball ended up serving kind of like a red violin, right? The idea of this thing has passed through so many hands of different characters over the course of the show, and it has returned back to where it started, you know, in Michael's possession, right? Because Michael originally had given it to Adam, Adam to Kofi, Kofi to Eugene, back to Michael, and back to the box. So it's been this real connecting thread. Just it hit me as being very poignant and as as a great narrative. 
narrative device to follow the baseball and you'll follow the entire mm-hmm. 20 hours worth of, of television. Yeah. Well, it'll always strike me that the baseball is what got Kofi out of jail to begin with, if you remember, um, because he like trades that that baseball, remember, to get out mm-hmm. of there like the last second. So, yeah, like moments like that, it was pivotal. You know, I mean, it changed the course right then of where where Kofi was going to be. The way that they use that baseball too to to roll over to, to little Rocco and and sort of remind us again, like follow the baseball, right? Like what whoever it goes to next, like things are going to be going for them. It reminded us of the role that the baby is going to play in this family and how it how this works like what's all on that little guy's shoulders and like what is all the history that's surrounding him and that baseball as simple as it is it really was like look look at all the weight that is coming with this and falling on this little baby you know and then the baseball ultimately winds up in the river and mm-hmm. to be to to do no more damage to to affect negatively or positively no more no one's life anymore, which is its own kind of metaphor. The the letting go, Michael's letting go of I, obviously I don't think letting go of Adam, but letting go of the trauma perhaps surrounding his death and the guilt that he bears and that all of the participants in the show bear. There, there's something significant about the tossing the baseball into the river. Yeah. It felt like a letting go in a lot of ways. I mean, it felt like, you know, he was clinging to it. You know, every single time that baseball would show up, do you remember the horror on his face? They'd be like, mm-hmm. I mean, remember they were like in the Jones house and the ball was there. I mean, yeah. all the different parts when it, he was able to let it go. And, and that's, huge. And now, do I think that that represents him able to heal from Adam or any of that? No, I don't think so. No, I think that this is process, a trauma though. forever. Yeah, but I, I do agree with you that it is definitely representative of wanting to end this particular story, this cycle that the baseball was a part of. Right. And, and he ultimately can't walk back into that prison with belongings, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so he really needs to shed this baseball as a part of his final redemption arc when he when he enters the jail at the end of the episode. I, I think I think the baseball getting rid of the baseball baseball is kind of part of that that whole journey of of redemption that he's seeking the renewed sense to live that he has you know at the end of the day he doesn't have Fia and the baby anymore he doesn't have Charlie right Charlie plays almost zero role in this episode at all that that relationship remains fractured the only thing he has is his honor and and i think that's what he's working to restore really when he walks back into that jail at the end of the episode the word that joey said in our interview that that really stuck with me is this concept of sacrifice and that every character needed to have some degree of sacrifice you know even something as small as the baseball felt like a huge sacrifice for him to throw that into the river and no longer have that to hold and and remember and just have you know it, it was another piece of adam that he literally sacrificed let go of and right. it, it it was so poignant and and at the same time you just like it you could almost feel it it was like ripping your own heart out like you could almost like feel like the strands coming from his chest as he like threw the ball in. It was just, oof, there's a lot. I mean, that's a great segue though into one of the first two episode themes, I think, and 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 the series theme really. This idea of facing justice, earning redemption, and what it what does it cost you, and the redemptive power of telling the truth there there's there's so much sacrifice and trauma by so many of the main characters in this show you really wonder let's take fia and let's talk about sacrifice and and fia faced with 
nowhere left to go no no one left to turn to her family had betrayed her again and again and then finally found them to be liars and murderers her adopted family lied to her and she's nowhere near a place where she can she may have, she may have reached a place where she she's forgiven adam but she's in no place to have forgiven michael or even begun that and so she gives up her child because I, I think, and, and Joey definitely touches on this. We make a joke about why have our own thoughts if we could just ask him what it, what it means, but we do have our own thoughts and that's why we're talking about this. She realized that baby was never going to be free of the Baxters and their hold as long as she and the baby were together. I, I think she's really making the ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice any parent can make in order for that baby to have a chance to thrive and, and to live and to live a life. So when she hands it over to, uh, well, I don't want to, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, uh, do we want to spoil who yeah. the actual adoptive parents are? I think that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was fun to learn when we talked with Joey that, that, that is actually Joey Hearthstone and his real life wife, um, receiving that baby as the adoptive couple. You know, one thing about that scene that really struck me Upon rewatch and upon having some distance from the show, because I would not have had this takeaway had I not had a little distance, which is why I actually don't mind when we take a little time on these finales. The baby is such a big baby throughout the majority of this episode. He is a hip baby. He's a baby that you carry around on your hip at this point. Okay, so he when we figured out he was like, what, nine months old, something like that, we figured close to a year. Roughly rough math on that. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere around there throughout this season, this second season. He's a big kid, though, and he's sitting up and he was playing with the baseball and all those kinds of things. I felt so differently about the adoption portion because when I watched it the first time, it was such a shock. And the way they hand the baby over to the parents, they're cradling it like it's a newborn. You can't see the baby. The blanket is like all over it and, and Joey's cradling it like a like a newborn baby. And there was something about that that made it seem very fresh. Like Fia had had the baby just then and just made the decision to to give it up for adoption. But having rewatched this and then having really paid attention, knowing what was coming at the end, knowing that baby was going to be uh, given up for adoption, I had such a different feeling of like how old that baby was and how much time Fia had spent with that baby. She wasn't like, oh, you know, a mom who was like on the go and had like, you know, three nannies who was raising this baby. Like she was in a hotel room with a baby for like almost a year. So -hmm. when we talk about the sacrifice of giving up this child, this child had a fully formed personality, little smile, you know, could sit up, could do all these things. Like it wasn't quite the same thing as giving up your baby at birth where like you didn't have all of this relationship time with him. It really gave me a, a fresh appreciation for Fia giving the baby up. It was a huge decision, a huge sacrifice. Watching those scenes of everybody keeping her from the baby, whether it's like her having to fight to get away from Senator Grandma and the judge, you know, having to yell and run out of there with him, or then her own family that was so visceral of her actually physically fighting her brother, her father, her. I think her that's mother, the nail in the coffin, right? The, the idea that they're yeah. restraining her, they're they're yes. keep, they're physically keeping her from the baby feels like a nail in the coffin for that yes. relationship and, and and cementing what she has to do. And you get what I mean, though, about like the the, the age oh, yeah. and the size of the baby. Like this, it felt really different knowing that baby was going to be given up at the end of the episode watching her with him i was like my goodness like he's so fully formed as like a whole little guy and she is so connected to him that i was just like wow this is such a huge 
huge move for her. But I applaud her because if anything that she learned is that you can be as good as you want to be, but if you're not willing to sacrifice, and we should probably move over to Eugene after this because I feel like he's the same way, realizing the sacrifice has to be made in order for your life to move forward is like the biggest thing, you know, and for her, it's the baby for Eugene. It's his name. You know, like there's a lot going on there of what you have to give up in order to be able to move on. I think the conversation she has with Father Jay, the flirty priest, is mm. is an important one about suffering and sacrifice and suffering are inextricably linked. The things her family has done, the, the things she has to do for the good of the baby, the idea of maybe being re- able to reunite with her brother and with Adam in whatever comes next. These are all in play. Because remember, that scene with the priest where she's sitting on the steps, which is the last time we see her before the montage, the finale montage, where we see her giving up the baby and handing over to, to Joey and his wife, Abby, and then driving away sobbing, where I think Lily Kay cries. You know, I think she kills it in a, in a wordless scene of just good acting. Mm-hmm. Suffering is a part of that sacrifice. Let's, let's listen to a little bit about uh, the scene between Fia and uh, Father Jay. I just found out that the guy that I fell in love with is the one who killed my brother. And they knew. They knew and they didn't tell me. Do you think you can find forgiveness in your heart? I think for Adam I already have. I'm so mad at him. But I also believe that he really loved me. I still feel it. But I don't know if I can forgive my family. The things they've done. I don't know why bad things happen to us. Suffering is a part of the human experience, and it's never fair. I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. But I do believe that the pain you endure here will be transformed into everlasting love. There is a heaven. As sure as we're sitting here, and your brother is there right now. I need that to be true. I need to know that when we lose someone, we haven't lost them forever. A lot there to cover. I, I want to talk about forgiveness first because she makes a point of saying she she thinks she's forgiven Adam and to boot, she still believes that he really loved her despite now knowing what he did. She says, I don't think I can forgive my family, which fine, don't forgive the Baxters, Jimmy and Gina and, and Carlo and, and her grandfather Carmine, the things they've done, really irredeemable. And even in this episode, not even a, a, not even a head nod towards redemption. But Michael, I, I, you have to wonder when she says, I don't think I can forgive my family for the things they've done. Is she including Michael in that? Because Michael and Fia's relationship for me was one of the real bright spots of an otherwise pretty gloomy season of television. The idea that the series ends, the final thing we see, there's no forgiveness nor no hint of forgiveness to Michael. I guess it's very raw and I understand that, but it kind of broke my heart a little bit that 
the you know it goes to black it fades to black without that because they had become such a wonderful part of the show this adopted father daughter kind of relationship through the baby and adam as the connective tissue i had really i had really grown to love that relationship and to think of it torn asunder hurts me much more than even charlie and michael the other really strongest relationship on the show that hurt my heart a little bit so i think i hope anyway when she's talking about i don't know that i forgive my family i'm hoping she's not including michael in that and that 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 is in there some somewhere i would like to hope so because i i do agree with you that you know i think it's the idea that michael and fia were the two people who needed love and support the most and they were the people who who managed to found find each other in this like completely crazy circumstance you're right like them falling out felt like oh no like there's no hope you know to fix anything else if these two can't be okay with each other you know at the same time i mean i really i give cranston a lot of credit because there were parts in this where I really thought it could have gone softer, more gentle, more, I don't want to say like after school, especially, but kind of in that there there could have been these moments of just reconciliation that just seemed warm and fuzzy because we wanted those things, right? Like our hearts wanted things to be okay for Fia and for Michael. Right. Hell, we wanted Adam to raise from the dead and Rocco too, for that matter. You know, we wanted everyone to be okay. I think when you realize like sometimes being okay means you don't get to be with those people anymore. Like that's part of this is like realizing like, especially again, going back to Fia and the baby, like sometimes being okay means apart. And that's, really hard for us to wrap our minds around yeah i i, I know that that's a very limp a limp response but but you're right no, that, no, that actually i think your sigh was awfully heavy i i actually I, i'm reading between your words and your sigh and your pause was like shit yeah i mean sometimes the right situation actually is a part there's there's several acts of forgiveness in this episode and 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 fia talks about forgiving adam here and not forgiving others eugene is a larger topic so i i want to i want to hold off on him for one second because i want to hit michael and senator grandma for this show every show is a little bit different how i set up my notes when i take them but for this show i, I always have a line that says michael and then under it i have bullet points and each bullet point is michael and then it goes with fia with charlie with jimmy with nancy and and because michael is michael almost this entire series was this center of the spoke of the wheel that interacted with all the different characters on the show so it was a it was a good way to frame the discussion michael talking with this person and with this person in this episode other than the court scenes michael has very limited interactions with characters he has the one scene with fia where she gut knifes him with the you're a liar and just like your son was and a quick scene with nancy uh, where she says she's there to protect him after his testimony in the stand. But really, otherwise, the only other interaction he has is a little bit with Lee outside of the courtroom and then with Senator Grandma. Why? Why is the Senator Grandma stuff important? Margot Martindale was very limited in this series. And at the end of the day, she was very limited in season two overall. But... As a surrogate for things left unsaid with Adam before he was before he was killed and the things left unsaid with Robin, who we never got to meet, Senator Grandma became the only other blood family Michael had. And I know he's she's not blood to him, but she's blood to his wife and to his son. She really becomes an important 
part and part for this finale because of Michael needing forgiveness from his family. And so there, there's two scenes in this episode that are gut-wrenching in the, in the, oh man, it gives me all the feels. I want to play them kind of back to back. This is the one before she knows what actually happened. And then the second clip is after she finds out about what Adam did with uh, Rocco Baxter. I've been subpoenaed. I know you don't want to. He wasn't trying to kill Adam. Not your job to protect that boy. And no one thinks you're trying to ruin his life, but he... He did leave that baby without a father. This is not on you. You're a good man, Michael. Oof. What an awkward sentiment for for Michael to hear that for a very particular point because he hasn't has he hasn't had his on the stand redemption moment that that we understand what that testimony will ultimately be and and the light it will shed on what actually happened with the Jones family and the Baxters and all of that you know my notes literally said oof like four O's and then a PH because and look at Cranston's face he plays that as don't say that I'm not a good man please you have no idea what you're talking about the next clip is her reaction Senator Grandma's reaction to Michael after now now she knows michael has been lying this entire time she knows adam is the one who was driving robin's car and is the one who killed rocco baxter and if she is going to take him to the woodshed this is the time for her to do it and she doesn't she embraces forgiveness she does the most unpredictable thing but maybe the thing michael needs the most in this episode i don't even know where to begin i covered up a crime I destroyed evidence. I lied to the police. I told Adam to lie. You did it all to protect Adam. Yeah. And that's all you got to say to me. This made me think of you, Caroline, because of all the people I know, including myself, you are by far the uh, softest heart, most willing to forgive person I know. I, I thought to myself, I think this, this is exactly how Caroline would be in any situation, but it reminded me of you. And it wasn't even so much her words. It was the it was the hand slap that she does there when, when, when she kind of like just pats his hand before as she says, that's all you ever have to say. Yeah. Like, like it, it was it made me feel better about things I've done, you know, like I, <laughs> I, I felt better on behalf of Michael. But I felt like I was like I felt like a little bit like I was in confession uh, oh, that, that that's the power of a grandma, though. That's the power of an authority figure grandma to, to say you're OK. I'm going to reframe that a little bit because you're saying that's the power of the grandma. And I'm going to say because I'm not a grandma, I have had a very unique life experience with my children and with everything that I've had to fight for and and do um 
because we definitely live in a special needs world here. So I'm going to say that it you might be actually gravitating not towards a grandma spirit, but towards a spirit who has experienced a lot in the world and kind of knows like what's life and death, what is what's worth ruining your life for, I guess I want to say in some way, versus like what is what are you just going to say, you know what, at the end of the day, that actually doesn't matter. Most people are pretty confused, I think, 90% of the time about what are the things that actually matter. And if you've lived through life and death situations with your children, if you've lived through just ongoing, chronic, you know, difficult life, of type of world. To me, I feel like you have a different outlook. And, and grandparents tend to have that too, because they've lived so much. They know what are the things, what are the mistakes that you make, or what are the choices that you make that really, really matter and really stick with you? And what are the things that you can do that everybody will ultimately understand at the end of the day? Those two parts. And so I, I do think that it is about a forgiving heart, but I think it's about an experienced heart and um, a heart that knows the difference between intention and like recklessness. His intention was always to protect Adam. So therefore, she could forgive anything he did. He didn't just bumble through making choices that sort of kind of were with Adam and thought, no, it was always singularly Adam. And she could understand that. So I've been, I've been watching all these old Oprah shows. <laughs> and one, one of the big parts that she has in one of the seasons was about intention. And if you know anything about me and the questions I'm often asking about characters, I'm often asking why. Why would this person do this? And in my real life, I, I have people get angry at me who, who look at me and say, why, why, why? You always want to know the why of things. That's to me because I need to understand someone's intention. If I, if I get their intention, I can come around to whatever, however they were thinking about this thing. In this particular story, you know, I think you and I, you being a, a wonderful father and, and me being a very committed mother, I feel like we have really, really like a like a tremendous depth of understanding of like we would do anything for our kids and we have done anything for our kids. I don't know. I think there's a lot there. And I think there's a lot of people who could understand. I actually have a really, really hard time connecting or understanding those with those people who don't know how to forget um, and forgive and, and allow people to kind of grow and change. I have a harder time. I have more questions for those people than I do for the people who do have a find a way to forgive. You know, barring from Game of Thrones, like words are wind, right? Words don't matter as much as what your actions are. Your actions are a reflection of your intentions. And, and so for, for me, intent and effort are always the most important thing. I don't really care about results. I don't care about mistakes made in pursuing it. I, I care about the why, the why, what were you trying to do? What, what were you thinking about? Because it makes me feel inclined if if it if something went disastrous or catastrophic, but the intention was good, I'm going to be much more inclined to want to help you fix it, problem solve it, make it right than if your intentions were bad or ill. Or just not thoughtful. Or like, not you know, like reckless, you didn't, right. Yeah, you didn't even think about it. You just you just randomly did something. I'm much more going to, for obviously, I think for, for, for any of the kids, I, I think I'm going to, no matter what the intention were, I'm going to try and help fix it. But for everyone else if you acted recklessly or if you acted with bad intent i'm gonna just let you out there to swing and 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 let <laughs> karma deal with you as you will because that's what you deserve it the way i i see it I, I do think intention is such a strong strong story point in this entire 
series, right? Like, what was the intent? Like, because there's plenty of fathers who, and I think we see this on the news a lot, right? We see, oh, you know, this privileged person got out of this situation, you know, just because they don't want to be held accountable, right? That That's kind of how it often is portrayed. We're like, if we saw this story as a news story, we'd see Michael's actions would be portrayed by the news as a wealthy, privileged judge doesn't want his child to have to face the consequences of a crappy decision. Here's what he did, and we should all, you know, frown at him. So it's interesting when you take those stories, because we see those stories every day on the news. There's stories, you could turn on the TV right now and find a story, gosh, the Gabby Petito case is going on right now. You can watch, you know, the Petito family fighting with the laundry family over intent. Clearly, they're, they're, the whole fight is over intent. Did you mean to hide this from us? Or did you mean to put your son and our daughter into this situation? Like, there's a lot going on with intent that's just fascinating. And I think when we look back, when Michael brings Adam to the police department, he doesn't say, oh, no, this is too overwhelming. I'm scared of you being in the system. So let's get out of here. That wasn't it. He wasn't trying to keep Adam from having consequences. He was trying to keep Adam from having catastrophic life ending consequences to something that he felt like, you know, yes, he deserved to be punished, but he didn't deserve to die for it. And he knew, you know, if the Baxters knew who it was, he would die for it. So the intent of him, what, why did he leave the police department to begin with? Was it because he didn't want his precious child to face any consequences? Or was it because the situation was too extreme and he would face consequences that were too much for what he did? That changes the story. If someone was listening to this, I feel like, of course, they've already heard this entire story. But moving forward, say there's a season three. I'd be so curious about the intention of our different characters, uh, especially people like Eugene or Lee or, or whatever, and all the different choices that they made, delving more into those things. I, man, what a great story. You know, there's so much more here. As important as Michael's intentions are to the narrative, to, to the propulsive narrative thread of this show this season was very much driven by eugene's intentions and eugene's choices and what level of justice or punishment or or good or bad karma does eugene deserve for being the one who killed adam in his attempt to kill carlo as a revenge attempt for the death of his entire family so let's now after after holding you off like three different times let's get into <laughs> eugene let's get into the trial i want to take a step back before we actually get to eugene what did you think of the interaction and the scene between lee and michael on the stand and the way they get to allowing him to tell the truth through the story of the baseball it's it's mm -hmm. the it, it goes all the way back to the pilot from when he first met eugene and the jones family in the trial of famale that mike it's the first time we see michael on the bench in that episode it's actually the house that he goes to visit in the very opening scenes before the title card even in your honor he's going to visit the jones house to see the layout of it they call all that back they really bookended well in this episode when michael gets on the stand what did you think of it did did it work for you did it feel too shoehorned or or did it was it in that sweet spot of yes this is how i want the story to come out 
I think they pretty much hit the sweet spot. I, it was important to me that they showed Lee struggling to find the avenue to be able to get the information out and do it in a way that Michael is cooperating with her and and allows Michael to give enough information at different points there. Like it was a very much like a choreographed dance. Like we have to, we got to, we got to step close this way, but like, you've got to be the one to say this because I can't say it or it'll be objected to, but like you bring up this and I'll talk about this. And the way that they had to kind of dance around like, like a, like, if it, if it was a a different a different showrunner, we might have had like a like a montage scene of them almost ballroom dancing around the courtroom, right? Because they were like that in sync and having to create this partnership ballroom look. I'm going to step this way, then you step that way to make it work. And I appreciated that they never really showed them really being like in cahoots. It was like all of this had to be done in this way that was like, I know what I'm doing and and I get where you're coming from. I have to feed you a little bit of information or I've got to lead you just to the line here, but you've got to step over or you've got to say it. I, on other shows, they would have like discussed it beforehand or like mm-hmm. they would have shown them talking about the plan, but they weren't like planning it together. It was like they had to work together, but they had to do it like from like a like a dark place because they, they weren't in in cahoots in the way of like I'm going to say this you say that but they were antagonistic this, I mean, they uh, were but it was like they had to dance together right. you know and so it was like it was such a strange like a hostile dance but it was still a dance and they still had to come together and make this happen for this kiddo and that is the intention at the end of the day they both wanted to help Eugene right. but they had to do it and protect themselves in their own way and that was very complex but but, but this is why Joey Hartstone was a wonderful showrunner and writer for this series because he you know as we know from his other work and what he wants to do next he's really really comfortable with these courtroom dialogue moments you know he really gets that and i feel like there was that really great give and take where you didn't know how they were going to get there but you couldn't wait till they got there what we see play out in the courtroom is really a bigger callback to Judge Michael Desiato and the years and years of goodwill and honor and respect he had earned from people like Lee, a former student turned brief lover, turned someone who admired him, then someone who felt extremely betrayed by him because of what he did and, and, and how he abused his power as a judge. The same way Nancy felt betrayed. The people who were most angry with Michael in this show that were formerly loyal to him at the end of the day, not because he was trying to protect Adam, but because he lied to them and, and betrayed them in a way, in a way because he betrayed his office and and their trust and didn't confide in them, but used them and manipulated them. Lee knows Michael at his core is an honorable man. I don't think Michael particularly cares about helping Eugene. I don't. I think Michael and I think Lee knows about Michael at his core is much more about wanting the truth to be out there and it just happens to help Eugene in this case. Can I ask you real quick, what is the indicator? Because I think there's going to be a lot of people who, who wonder about this one. And I think I have the answer in my head of what could be an indicator. But what indicated to you that Michael wasn't actually like all in on simply helping, you know, in the same way that Olivia and Lee were very just like all in on helping Eugene? What how did they depict that to you in the show? Oh, shit. We talked about this in the last two episodes. <laughs> 
episodes mm-hmm. and I did not re-listen to them and I don't remember. We had concrete evidence in, in episodes eight and well, nine. I'm gonna just it. point out I'm gonna point out something in this episode. Well, I have some I have something it, from this episode. I, I, I think we've talked previously about how Michael has been a little I don't want to say cold, but I think I mean cold standoffish to to Eugene and his plight when we've seen Mm -hmm. them interact prior. I I think the forgiveness scene, which we're going to get there at the end Mm -hmm. after all this is done. I mean, we can play that. Well, I can play the the clip right now and then we can talk about it. So we're we're going to put the car before the horse a little bit. Go ahead. Am I done? The prosecution still gets to cross-examine you. Judge Luciano. Sorry about Adam. I know. I'm sorry too, Eugene. Now he doesn't say anything more than that, and 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 Eugene calls him over in an enthusiastic way to apologize for Adam, and his response is, "I'm sorry," in more of a blanket way, but even more so. And I, I, there was no point to play it here, but go back and watch the episode. They just kind of stare stare at each other for about fifteen to twenty seconds. It's extremely awkward because it's filled with unsaid words that Michael just can't bring himself. Nor do I think he really. I I really don't think he cares. Famale, Kofi, Eugene, these were these were just participants in his life as a judge and then participants in his life around his son ultimately dying. I think he doesn't care about them beyond they were killed in direct part and indirect part, depending on which part of the show we're talking about, things Michael did and lied about. So he cares about it because he wants the the truth to be out there and the truth to be said and the record to be straight on what happened. I don't think he particularly cares about them in a personal way, not the way Lee cares about Eugene anyway. Right. What's your take? Well, the moment for me is that it's actually Eugene that says judge Desiato and like stops him from leaving the courtroom. I think had Eugene not done that, he, Michael would have walked out of the courtroom and never said anything to Eugene. And that's everything you need to know right there about what he uh, thinks about call. Eugene. Yeah. He doesn't. Everything he thinks about Eugene is that he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't. He d- And he didn't. He was done with that and he was walking away. And, and and if you think about your own behavior as an adult, at the end of anything, whether it's a chorus recital or whatever, as adults, the proper thing to do is to stand in line and wait to say to the teacher, to the director, to the whatever, that was a great show. Thank you so much. You know, appreciate everything you do with our kiddo. And then you leave, right? For all intents and purposes, this is what Michael should have been doing anyway. He should have said goodbye to Eugene. He should have said he should have at least had some sort of acknowledgement to Lee. It didn't have to be any words, but an acknowledgement of some sort. And he didn't, he was going to walk out. He was going to hundred percent walk out. Now here's the thing. Had I not known Michael's story, I would have thought, well, wow, this is a gruff, grumpy old dude who's just like has no manners and is just leaving. But that's not what this guy's about. This guy has been through the meat grinder. Like we are basically just seeing a man who is so broken apart. He is like contained within a sack of skin, but he as a person, 
person is absolutely obliterated. So those like societal niceties, like coming over and saying anything to Eugene, it was never going to happen. Not because he doesn't feel terrible about Eugene and the Jones family. There is so much grief over Adam and so much grief over everything that has happened. And for God's sake, let's not forget about his wife and everything else that he's still actively grieving. All of those things... I think there's no room to grieve for for Eugene at this point. Maybe with some time and some distance from everything that's happened, he will almost like come around to starting to grieve for the Jones family. But it's it's so far down on the list. He just can't. But that but I watched that scene so many times because it was Eugene who stopped to make sure that they said sorries to each other. That meant to me that Michael didn't need to say sorry to Eugene to move on with his life. He doesn't need that forgiveness and he doesn't need to offer anything to say sorry back to Eugene for him to be able to walk on in his life. But Eugene needed it because he's still like a little soft heart. You know, he he he, well, he still son. is trying. He's still trying, you know. Yeah, but also he literally killed his son. Michael didn't literally kill Kofi, though. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I, I, there's plenty to still talk about about Eugene, but I want to, I want to get back to Lee and Michael because it's just a, one of the tangents that's important here. As Michael, as a, as a character in his redemption arc, the show is telling us in the scene where they're maneuvering to get Michael to finally tell the truth on the stand about what happened with Adam and Rocco, because Lee knows. He may not care about Eugene specifically. He may not care about Kofi. He may not care about any of it or any of her clients that she so deeply cares. But she knows he is a person at his core who is honorable, wants to be seen as honorable, and most importantly, wants to tell the truth. What she's doing here is she's giving him the space to tell the truth. One of the themes of this episode is the restorative power of telling the truth. Right? He tells the truth and Senator Grandma forgives him. As long as you're protecting Adam, that's all you ever have to say to me. He tells the truth and Nancy is willing to come to his house to protect him after the testimony he gives here. He tells the truth and Eugene gets to start over a new life and not rot and die in prison. The truth is the great equalizer here. The truth comes out about the gas leak and Fia finally sees the monsters that she has as a family, Jimmy and, and Gina and her brother, and cuts ties with them. The truth is the wielder that sets karmic balances correctly. If you let the truth out it's going to set the scales to where they need to be and i think lee is is giving michael the chance she doesn't know what he's gonna say he may lie he may plead the fifth like she says in the hallway if you can't lie then at least plead the fifth but she knows in his core he's someone who wants to tell the truth so just give him the space and the avenue to do that and he will because he is a great legal mind that's how the gas leak comes up i think that's all about more about again the truth coming out it couldn't have been a gas leak explosion because they didn't have gas there it's a legal game for him it's a mind game and it's a matter of truth and honor for him less about the actual people involved it doesn't matter it could have been Famale and and the jones family or it could have been the smith family or the 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 roderick family you know it didn't matter the family it mattered about the circumstances and the way the truth was being hidden 
I want to give a lot of credit to both um, Joey and to Rosemary for the way that those courtroom scenes were shot and the way that the, the dialogue was kind of being doled out, like real small little chunks, a lot of like looking at each character's faces with the camera. A lot, a lot of, of face acting in this episode, mm-hmm, a lot and, of and face just, acting. But, but it really helped build the tension and build the, the anticipation of like what each person was going to say. And like every, just it could just be a sentence and then the camera would like check in with different faces and you could see the impact that each sentence was having on each character as we were kind of we were almost playing this like carousel game where it was like we would go to one person they'd say something then it was like pan everybody come back around say something else like it really created this this spiraling feel of like we don't know exactly where we're going but we can feel the momentum picking up and in again I find it fascinating because this usually doesn't work. If you have some sort of like murder mystery or if you have some sort of twist, once you've seen it once, it usually absolutely dissipates. Like you can't go back and watch it again. Once you once you know what happens in the sixth sense, you know, there's no undoing that. Right. But something about this finale and the way that they shot it and the way that they wrote it, it was so clever and so simple in 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 the way that we were looking at each person's face that it retains its that's the tension it retains the feeling of like oh my god what is going to happen how is this going to actually work out partially because it's not fully explained how this is working out which is something that i think might kind of piss people off like we don't have all the answers of where eugene is going we don't have all the answers of what's going to happen to michael next we don't have all the answers and that allows i think for that tension to stay pretty high even in these courtroom scenes it certainly gives plenty of room for replay value where you every you can watch it over and over again and watch the face acting. I, I I saw Michael's reaction to Eugene being on the stand talking about the way they eat because they can't use any food to cook. There there's a shot of Michael in the gallery of his of his face literally reacting to that in a way that said like you could almost see the the looney tunes-esque light bulb go up Mm -hmm. over his head but i didn't catch that the first time i caught that the second time i saw the episode because i was more engrossed in what eugene was saying because then benjamin flores jr is is just killing it as eugene Mm -hmm. in this show and particularly in this episode you know when he when he shouts you know they had names for molly jones and he names all of his his siblings names you know that kind of stuff was really what was enrapturing me the first time i watched it Watching Cranston's face react and 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 that I caught the second time and I was like oh what else am I missing here let uh-huh. I I, I want to play the two what I think are most important clips from the trial the first one is Michael on the stand this is where the truth comes out then we're gonna talk about it then the second one is gonna be Eugene when Eugene realizes the truth which he knew all along and just hadn't put it together because. You know, you need someone to help. He's a kid. (laughs) And sometimes you need someone to help walk you through it in in the same way. Michael and Lee, like you were talking, they dance it out. Uh, Lee, with Michael's help, dances it out of Eugene. It has to be in Eugene's Mm -hmm. words, but they help maneuver him there about what the truth must actually be. Let's let's play this first clip of Michael on the stand. When did you see Eugene Jones earlier that day? I saw him in my chambers. He was selling me a baseball. Objection. The witness is offering narrative not asked for. Sustained. Fine. Why was he in your chambers? He was... 
just a quick stop. That's a perfect example of what you were talking about earlier. There are limits on how this information can be presented. So they have to work together to get it out correctly. He can't just start going into his once upon a time story. It has to come in a form of a question, question and response. There is a dance. There is a, a back and forth. That's a great example of what you were just talking about. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but we're play the clip now. When did you see Eugene Jones earlier that day? I saw him in my chambers. He was selling me a baseball. Objection. The witness is offering narrative not asked for. Sustained. Fine. Why was he in your chambers? He was selling me a baseball. How much for? $500. Why so expensive? It was autographed by Mariano Rivera. What was your interest in that ball? It once belonged to my son. Do you know how Adam's baseball came into the possession of Eugene Jones? He inherited it from his brother, Kofi Jones, after he died. How did Kofi Jones end up with that baseball? It was in my car. The car that hit Rocco Baxter? Yes. The car that Kofi stole? Yes. The car that he stole October 9th? No. He stole the car on October 10th. The day after the car hit Rocco Baxter? Yes. So Kofi Jones wasn't driving that car that was involved in the hit and run? No. Who was driving? My son. Now, he does say Adam right after that, but I cut it off for whatever reason. I thought it was nice to add with my son. I mean, that's something we've known for two years. We've literally known it since the opening scenes of the first episode. It was so powerful to hear narratively the, the story of the baseball taking us to that to that point of truth coming out. It was powerful. Mm-hmm. It was power- It's powerful every single time I hear it because he feels it so deeply he feels this narrative so deeply because it has affected his soul like a cancer for so long now well and there was such the the lengthy complicated game of not taking responsibility that to actually say my son it's like equivalent to like i did this you know like it, it's so plain as a, as opposed to all of the twisting and right. no chicanery and, no mis- yeah, no, yeah no redirect no no look that way and we're gonna run this way like just my son did this and i mean if you think about the fact that had he done that on in the very first episode just said my son did this there would be no story, you know, and so to finally get there in and, and, you know, as audience members, I'm curious if people feel like if you feel listening right now, you know, do you feel like did you do you apply this to your own life? Do you think about this and say, like, my God, the the hoops I jumped through, the things that I did to keep people from knowing X, Y, Z, when all I really had to do was say the equivalent of my son did this, whatever that is for you. I did this and I own it and I did it. 
and I'm sorry for it. And, and I wish it hadn't happened. You know, how many times can you look back and see how much tap dancing you did to avoid just saying that statement? Or had you just said it at the beginning, you know, everything could have been okay or much better. <laughs> well, but here's the thing, though. And and this remains true no matter no matter the tap dancing no matter the 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 hoops being jumped through to get us to this point had Michael just said my son did this Adam would have died so there would have been no story but then Adam would have been dead the next day that truth remains inescapably true Jimmy yeah. said I would have fucking killed him. So he had to do this. He had to, obviously. Well, and here's the other reason why he he had to do it. It's because of, especially for a parent, but I think that, and you know, someone might feel this way about their spouse or somebody else, but, but as a parent, Michael had to do everything he did because he could never look back and think I could have done something to, to keep this from happening. So since he did everything he did and Adam still ended up dead, he at least could say, I did everything. And I mean, everything down Cost to everything. running on my own two feet. I ran with my own two legs to my son's murder. Like that's how visceral and how primal it actually became that, you know, for him, there's nothing left that he could have done. There's just nothing left that he could have done. So in that way, I kind of think that he has a better shot at sort of grieving it and knowing he did everything he could, as opposed to had he walked into that police station, said my son did it. He was shot the next day or killed in custody or whatever happens next. He would have always wondered what if I didn't, what could I have weaseled him out of this? Could I have said enough things? Could I have tap danced to get him out of this? He knows standing on that stand that day, there wasn't anything he could do. I mean, the, the death notice was written the second Rocco died and, and Adam drove away, you know, that was it. Like the, the contract was already signed. So it's, it's so rough. It's so rough. And, and part very of this final I do... destination of you, you're a hundred percent correct, but also <laughs> very de- final destination. Of you. <laughs> but, but as a parent, don't you agree that there's sometimes yep. when you, you leap through these hoops and you look back and you're like, God, I did so much. And I don't think it actually yielded anything. But what it did do was check off every box that said, I tried everything I possibly could. And sometimes that's what you needed. You know, you needed to know you tried, you know, in order to be okay with what happened. Not that he is okay, but, you know, he'd be less okay if he hadn't tried anything. He would, he would be less okay had he not done all the things I think he would have killed did. himself, to be honest with you. I think that he would be gone. Well, here's the thing. I think this is undeniably true with parents and their children, or at least with most parents and their children. And I think it's often true with significant others that, that you're truly in love with the person. There's a little bit, and, and in some cases more than a little bit, of your soul and your heart that travels around with them every day. Oh my gosh, Can do I get to give my scientific background on that one for a second? About moms? <laughs> yeah, yes. So you guys, that's like an actual scientific thing because I just like read this entire study about how like for, for mothers in particular, although I will give Mike credit that he is more mother than father, really. So he probably does. <laughs> he probably does count for this as well. She means that in the manliest <laughs> way possible. It says nothing to a gender. It has yeah. to do with your level Emotional, of nurturing. Yes. Okay. Yes. You are, you are far more of a nurturing parent because we have the umbilical cord and because we share cells like our cells actually wander through one another as as the as the pregnancy goes on that they find 
the cells of the of the children were still present in the brain of the mother when the mother had passed actual cells dna cells that that identify as individual children are still flowing in her body so it is not a metaphor it is not an exaggeration to say that parents walk around with a piece of their child in them they literally do and it's why we have that intuition it's why we have that link to our kids that feels even greater than you would think of just giving birth to this child but there's actually like pieces of them inside of you that's wild there's your science well, metaphorically, I'm going to say it anyway because I don't get to actually <laughs> share that story. But I, I and I and I say, again, I say this to Tom all the time. I said you have to be careful when you're out in the world because there's literally a part of me traveling around with you everywhere you go. And if something was to happen, I would never be whole again. I know that's not scientific in my case. It is in your case with your kids. But- <laughs> I said that you're more mom than dad. So for God's sake, maybe you did carry Tom a little bit in your belly. But A I, little bit. But, but You carried him around in another part of your body for some time. <laughs> but metaphorically, so much of my heart is wrapped up in him that I would be truly lost. I, if, if something was to happen to him, it would happen to me by, by extension. And I think for Michael, who had only Adam, he didn't have really a relationship with Senator Grandma to speak of. Think about their relationship in the first season. It was very frosty and cold and, and it was very classic mother-in-law, you know, son-in-law kind of relationship, especially with the death of Robin. And he had no Robin anymore. So he had Adam. So everything was about Adam. So every time Adam went out in the world, a part of Michael was with him. So when Adam dies, for all intents and purposes, Michael died in, in, a, in a very real way, albeit metaphorical way. A part of him died. And the entire first part of this second season was about the resurrection of Michael. Fi- Olivia finding ways to bring Michael back from the dead, bring him back by resuscitate him by having to help Charlie or else Charlie will pay for Michael's crimes, I- introducing the baby so that he has something to live for with the baby. And now Fia, a surrogate child he can care for, a surrogate, uh, a legitimate grandchild he can care for, a renewed relationship with his mother-in-law once the truth of Robin comes out and that shared pain and, and resolution of that trauma is brought to light. This whole season was about the death and resurrection of Michael. That is a good motivation for season two. And I feel like the way that Cranston actually played it out, how it revealed the whole thing to me as it unfolded was that, yes, yes, this was an attempt at a redemption for Michael. But what we found was that this man was a husk of a human. There was nothing to redeem. That's why he didn't have the need. There was nothing inside of him that said, go say sorry to Eugene or even say goodbye to Eugene, for God's sake, or say bye to Lee or say anything to anybody like he isn't home. You know, he's not in there. So on, on in some way, yes, he he walked through the motions that were the steps that one would do to be redeemed. But I think it was without, without whatever selfish part that would come with you that said like, I need this in order to be able to heal and move on. He did it without any expectation of healing and moving on. He, he walked through these steps partially, you know, because he was forced to because of Olivia's, you know, hand in the story. Mm-hmm. But there's something about him that I don't think he's capable of having redemption because I don't think he's home. I don't think he's in there. His soul, like you said, like a part of your heart, a part of your world would be 
there would just be a void in you forever. Imagine if it's both your spouse and your only child. What is left inside you? Well, his grandchild, point? right? But now he's lost his grandchild for the greater good of of the truth. He's lost his grandchild. So, but he but he held off on even wanting any type of relationship with that child. Like he even recognized for that, their like, own I have good. Nothing. Though. Yes, yes, yes. But you get what I'm saying, though. That there's no, like I said, there was no selfishness in his desire to do the redemption walk. There was nothing he expected to gain from doing it. He was doing it to help anyone he could help along the way. He he was doing it again because he was coerced and, and manipulated into it because of Olivia. But. Anything he could do, he was going to do, but not because at the end of the day, he would be healed or he would suddenly have this great redemption where everyone would be cool with him. That's not what happened. Fia doesn't forgive him. Eugene did say, I'm sorry, but it's not like that's a warm and fuzzy relationship. You know, him and Lee did not reconcile. She still hates him. I'm curious if that's true. I, I, well, I Hold on. The yeah. one and only, I would say that it really, really, I do see was truly hateful of him and really changed was Nancy. Mm -hmm. She's the one who like that, that relationship went all the way around and came back to the beginning when she said, I'm here to protect you. Damn. I mean, that, that was, it was like, wow. Okay. You really did get that one relationship back. I would submit it was the difference of sex between them. Oh yes. Well, because but beyond I, that, I mean, well, also, no, he I don't think Lee so hard. He, but he I mean, used fancy too. He, I, he but used, but love. He said, "I love you." Well, yes, that's what I'm saying. The, oh my god! If you look at what Michael did to Nancy uh, and what he did to Lee, manipulated yes, yes. and used them in very similar ways to his ends and and covering up what happened. But he crossed a line, a sexual romantic line with Lee that he didn't. With Nancy, which makes Nancy much easier to forgive Michael. I think this act that he does for Eugene, even if he doesn't particularly care about it, I think will go a long way in Lee's eyes of rehabilitating her image of Michael. I'm not saying they're going to get back in the sack together, but I think that him doing that enables a pathway for where she could at least forgive him if not actually be friends with him again or anything else with him he 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 absolutely didn't have to do anything he did on the stand he she opened the door but he walked through it he didn't have to walk through it she wanted him to walk through it but he didn't have to take the bait he could have told a much different or a much more brief curt version that's where I'm saying, like, I, I actually this is a different type of story for us, because most of the time when someone comes back in a situation like this, they're coming back with the hopes of redemption. There's actually like the intent behind it is like, I want to come here and make things right. He, Michael didn't give a shit about making things right. When he was in prison, he was fine with not eating, with not letting himself die in there. He was already dead, though, right? Remember, again, he was already dead. Right. Right, right. Signing up for the prison rodeo, all those things, right? Like, he really fully was over this. So coming out here and being, like, given this opportunity for redemption... I feel like in every other story, the person who gets out of prison is like gunning for the redemption. Mm -hmm. They can't wait to be redeemed. They can't yeah. wait to get out here and finally do it. And that is not what we saw with Michael. And I think that makes it more compelling because what do you do when you have this like reluctant redemption? You know, where it's like he's here because he has to be. He's here because Olivia made this situation. He didn't want to be in that courtroom. I mean, gosh, he said, keep me out of that courtroom no matter what you do. 
none of this was gung-ho, let's get redemption done. It was all like, ugh. I agree with you. Can we earn redemption even if we're not seeking it then? Can we earn redemption even if we're not seeking it? Sure, I think so. And if so, does Michael? In like a karmic way, I think you can. I think that there is a different personal redemption side that I don't think he feels any more redeemed than he did when he was coming out of prison or when he had to go into prison. Like, I, there's nothing about Michael that feels healed or at a place of like, I don't know how to say it. Like, whatever relief you're supposed to get from redemption, I don't know that that happened. You know, like he didn't actually get that release, that relief, that like, he didn't get that. And and I and I don't or I didn't see that. Well, Maybe he, you well did. he didn't get that, but he wasn't seeking that, though. I guess he was the point. Right. But that's so unusual. How many how many how many quote unquote heroes journeys have you seen where the hero actually doesn't care to be redeemed? <clears throat> that never happens. Or, right. Or 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 uh, transformed in any way. Right. He, right. He purely, I mean, he purely he, left he prison obviously... just to clean up messes. So they weren't so they didn't get worse for other people he left behind. Basically, yeah, like just to try to avoid, you know, creating a, a worse situation for Fia and for, you know, the baby and all that stuff. And little by little, you know, more people were revealed as like who he needed to help. But it still was like he he never stepped foot out of there. And the reason why I think he could walk back in with such ease, because, man, it takes a lot to be able to walk in. And I really watched him like I let the I let the ending just like play out where the camera just stays watching him walk. It's not like a, a guard comes and runs at the gate and escorts him in or that he's in shackles or something. I mean, he willingly walks back into that prison. Oh, yeah. His shoulders are back. His chest is mm -hmm. out. Yeah. Which so that is a different guy. But I don't it's like he's just more willing to take his punishment, but not that it's not that it's done or that he's healed or anything. A strange ending, really, for a hero when you think about it. Because, again, you know, and I'm using hero, you guys, in like a narrative story term, you know, because a lot of people would say he's not a hero, Caroline. What are you talking about? No, I'm just saying like in a hero's journey, that type of story, normally there would be some yay, you know, at the end of it. And it's yay for some people. But it isn't for Michael, you know? Let's talk about Eugene and whether or not he really achieves a yay ending and whether or not he really deserves a yay ending. <laughs> I uh, like that that's a term now. Was it a yay ending, would you say? <laughs> when, you're, when you're flipping through your Choose Your Own Adventure uh, book, you have the, the bad ending and you have the yay ending. Yay ending. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about Eugene. Let's play his testimony and then, and then talk about his time on the stand and, and what he goes through really in this episode in his arc. What did you eat for breakfast, Eugene? We had some pickle juice. I fried sometimes when we helped out. And who helped you out? My older brother sometimes. You had to survive on pickle juice and hot fries. Well, whatever was around. We had cereal, too. Eggs? Bacon? No, none of that stuff. Why not? We couldn't cook. We couldn't cook because we didn't have any gas. Your gas had been shut off. Eugene, are you sure about that? Yeah, we, we didn't have enough money for, for bills. 
We have gas for weeks. When the chime on the soundtrack kind of first intones, his pitch changes and his pulse quickens with his words. It, it again, it's there are some standout individual, very specific acting choices and scenes in this episode. Brian Cranston, Lily Kay, and and most importantly, Benjamin Flores Jr., who plays Eugene, blew me away in this episode. His time on the stand here. The I, it's a very long clip, so I had to kind of pick and choose what I wanted. And because you can hear, you don't even need to see it, you can hear him him realize where Lee has danced him to. And the truth, again, truth is is dawning on him. He knows that it was not a gas leak that killed his family. No matter how many people tell him, no matter how many police reports say it, he knows in his bones this was not a gas leak that killed his family. Now he knows it for real. How about the fact that he didn't know that there had been an investigation into the explosion and that they had determined it was a gas leak? I mean, that's the kind of thing where it's like, I'm sorry, might you want to talk to the remaining member of the family that did not die? <laughs> like, might you want to have him be a part of the investigation? I mean, of course, as audience members, we know it was all a ruse, but it was it was important to point out, I feel like, in that courtroom to say, like, Eugene, did, were you aware of the investigation? And he's like, no. <laughs> I feel like to the jury and anyone else listening, it's like, well, that's us, you know, like it like speaks to the the questionable whole nature of the police force and everything that you're listening to. We learn later that Cusack, who is the who is the NOPD officer who is on the Baxter's payrolls, the one who led the quote unquote gas leak investigation. So, of course, that all checks out. And I like that the show buttoned that up. But obviously we knew what the truth was there. But just just. Uh, Eugene on the stand in the two segments, right? Because they have to take a short recess after he demands that the names be read, that it wasn't just Eugene's mother and and younger siblings, but that they have names. And then they take the short recess and then he comes back for for this section. Grueling. He has had he has to relive literally the entire first season of the show uh, on the stand. And it's all bad. No good things happen to Eugene or his family in the first season. Nothing. No nothing good happens. So at the end of reliving that and he's always been telling the truth. That's why he's always been insisting to take the stand, right? He didn't want to be just be like a thug with a gun. He wanted people to hear his story because he thought it was persuasive and in fact it was. But it is his own sense of he's always been telling the truth, but he needs to say it out loud and for people to hear it and to believe him. And I think that's relatable for all of us. There are so many times, I think, in all of our lives where we know we're on the right side of something, but for whatever reason or happenstance, we are we look guilty or we're invisible in the situation and we just want to shout out what it actually is. Hear my words. The idea of not being invisible or not being a villain just because you're not allowed to speak, I think is something that is relatable to all of us. So the fact that he actually gets to do it made me feel happy for him. I, I, I felt it in my I felt it in my soul joy that he was able to tell his story and have this epiphany that Lee leads him to about the gas and, and the reason that they couldn't cook in his house. 
it was a wonderful reveal. I mean, it, it worked so well. I was like, I mean, as it was happening, I was like, <gasps> like, cause, because I remembered, I remembered the pickle juice and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They didn't have anything. They didn't cook anything that morning. Like I was like, I was with it the whole time. And the fun thing was that I was with it the next time I watched it. I was like, oh yeah, remember the pickle juice? <laughs> like yeah. it's funny. So I, I thought it was just so well written and again, well acted. Like you felt like, he was realizing all of these things and that it was provable. I think that was like a big part coming back to the show and it's like courtroom roots. The fact that there was a transcript, there was, there was actual factual information here that we could use evidence that we could use to point to the Baxters. There had been a, a gross lack of that in really the majority of the show. It would all be like he said, she said kind of things like pointing at, you know, it's like the Spider-Man memes, right? Like the gif, like everyone's pointing at the other Spider-Man. But like there were things here in this where you're like, damn it, if that isn't conclusive enough evidence, then like, I don't know what is. And it just, it felt so satisfying, right? It felt satisfying, but really just for the Baxters to be exposed finally in some way. And who knows? I mean... Talk about people not getting justice. The Baxters definitely, sadly, escape all forms of justice and punishment here, except for, you know, Jimmy, I guess. But Gina and that, you know, shit-eating grin of hers and Carlo and his very shit-eating grin of his, he remains the most punchable face on television. <laughs> not Jimmy Stanton, who I think is a wonderful actor and plays the role well. Carlo Baxter is the most punchable human on any television show ever. I just want I, to... I still have a question i know we asked joey like is he the actual biological child of of uh jimmy and like is there something weirder going on between carlo and gina and he laughed with us and he and he agreed that there was like some <laughs> hinky biz but no it's their biological child calm down when he did that to Fia, I almost like fell on the floor in yeah. the rewatch. Because we didn't even of, talk I, about that. Yeah. When he grabs I, her and does the calm down move. Uh, guys, oh. go back and watch it. It is eerie <laughs> as fuck. If, if Fia turned around and be like, you want to fuck me too, Dad? Like, you want to fuck what? mom? Well, because that's what Gina says to him. No, you know? I know. But yeah. like, also like, was I, I feel like Fia could have turned around and been like, maybe Frankie will take care of me too, Dad. Oh, Lord. Man, we just, <laughs> we just edited some of the darkest parts of the reddits, of the subreddits. Uh... <laughs> I, I totally man that it's blew my now brain out now your brain is all fia and frankie what i can't all michael watches and cries what stop it uh, not michael so jimmy messy. Oof, gross i hope that um, joey's listening to this joey are you listening to how, how we're, we're doing this, this is season characters? three season oh three god. becomes a psychosexual adventure oh my god you just made me laugh in my drink <laughs> So Eugene has this epiphany. He finally knows he is not crazy. He, the truth is exposed. He gets the deal, right? The the Olivia, you know, who has been watching the proceedings this episode. She really hadn't been. I don't think she had been present in the courtroom previously, but in this episode, she's present in the courtroom. I, I was interesting. I, I was thinking to myself, was she there because she was trying to keep tabs on what Michael was going to say? And that's what brought her to the courthouse for for his testimony. And yet it doesn't really matter. But she intercedes after hearing Eugene's stories, cuts him a deal that he'll become a, a, a witness for the government, work against the Baxters and go, Baxters and go into protective custody. He's going to have to change his names. I, I'm curious what you thought of his 
reluctance that he was going to have to change his name and, and pick a new identity and her response to him about he'll always be Famali's son and Eugene's and Kofi's brother and no one can change that. Did that work for you? Did that just seem too pat? Did that just seem like something you say to a kid equivalent of don't worry about it. You'll get you'll get used to being, you know, Bobby Jones or whatever. Probably not Bobby Jones. It's probably Pro- way probably too close not to Bobby the- Jones. <laughs> Oh shit! Yeah, his name was Jones. Yeah, so yeah, probably not Bobby Jones. Bobby Smith. There Bobby. you go, Bobby. <laughs> okay, you're in a so propane accessories, Bobby. It, it's exactly what we were talking about with Michael. Like, you can change your name, you can you can change a thousand things, but you can't change what happened, and you can't change like who you are and what's going on with you inside. So that was the thing. Like, your name it it, it is meaningful, and I think they did a good job of like showing that it is a huge sacrifice to walk away from your family name. That was very well illustrated, but I think it was really important to keep pointing out this trauma, everything that went with you. I mean, this is not you're not going to be able to walk away from this. Like your name is inconsequential compared to like you will always be your mother's son. You will always be, you know, your sibling's brother, like all that stuff. So it was important. And I and I think you could apply it across the board to everybody like Fia will always be the daughter of a mob boss regardless of where she runs to or what she does next like she's going to carry that with her same with gina or jimmy or gina's dad you know all of these people come with their baggage and you know it's it's like on one hand you're trying to hang on to stuff like your name but on the other hand here you have olivia trying to give you this this fresh start like a false fresh start because you can't wipe your brain clean you know you can present yourself as a as a clean slate to the public but internally you're still eugene jones who lost your family and and whose brother was killed and all these things happened so it's a false fresh start you know well you've brought us to the most important question at the end of the day now with eugene 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 gets the most definitively happy ending on this show the last we see of him he's on the bus he has been he has boarded a bus after lee and olivia are there when he gets out of opp he says thank you for caring about me they he gets on the bus and then the last thing we see of him is his his face is up against the window and he's smiling he's heading into an unknown future but it is a future where he is alive it is a future where he has a chance to start over again as much as anyone can start over again and if he's going to be working with the government he will hopefully play a cathartic role in helping bring down the people who are responsible for killing his family it's the by far happiest ending of anyone in the show which maybe is right given that by pure body count, he had the most devastating experiences of anyone on the show. But just like ADA Rawl is not persuaded to make a deal after Michael's testimony, because no matter what Michael did or didn't do or said or didn't say, no matter how sympathetic Eugene's story is, at the end of the day, Eugene Jones shot and killed Adam Desiato, period. The question is, and I think the fandom was more divided about this than I would have guessed that they were, but the question is, did Eugene face enough justice for committing the crime and not getting punished with jail time? Or was he punished enough already? Which I think where most of us probably come down. But I'm curious how you feel about it. And do you see the people who feel like Eugene got good karma for what happened to him, but zero karma for being the one who actually kills Adam? Or zero punishment for being the one who kills Adam. 
Well, I mean, he did get time served. So, I mean, he had served some amount of time. Now, was this like nearly enough for taking someone's life? No. Was this a situation that we think could be replicated? I think that's what you have to think about when you're thinking about crimes, right? And like, was it enough punishment? Is this person likely to do this again? I don't think this set of circumstances are likely to ever come across Eugene's desk again. I think that this was so extreme and so specific I mean, his entire family was killed. I mean, this is all very unique. Ultimately, whether we think it's fair or right or what, our justice system does need to use prisoners as informants and does use our, you know, witness relocation program and the the witness protection plan to try to bring down larger groups of people. So I think that they did a good job with Olivia and um and and conversations with Fia of explaining like why we're willing to let go one guy in order to take down much bigger fish here. So I think that it was explained enough for me and for I would guess the majority of audience members to say okay, I get it. I mean, it, he it actually does more for the justice system and maybe he's not facing significant punishment as we would think, but he has to walk away from everything, you know, including his name. Like there's things that he is sacrificing all over the place that does allow him to have a little bit more of a life. I I, I don't know what his life is going to look like. You know what I mean? Like we saw Michael right. and what his life looked like being an informant and how much he was tormented by being an informant. Just because Eugene gets to be in the protection program doesn't make me feel like his heart and his soul isn't going to be strained on the regular, having to give up information about people and having to get close Relive. to people. Because I, yeah, because I imagine that's how they're going to use him too. Mm-hmm. He's smiling. And I was happy to see that smile. But as again, going back to the, our original conversation about like wisdom and having lived a life, you know, a small part of me went like, oh, bub, like you don't know what you don't know yet of like how hard this is going to be and what they're going to ask of you, because we've just spent an entire season having Michael be literally tormented by Olivia popping up in the bushes. You know, I don't know how that's not going to be Eugene's rest of his life. Well, I, I, I agree with you. That was Michael's experience with Olivia. I think the way they paint Olivia here, where she's very much Clarence with the wings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eugene, mm-hmm. Eugene, I'm going to make you a deal, Eugene. I I. I <laughs> Think that's my Jimmy Stewart, guys. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, Maria, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lasso the Baxters and deliver them to you on a plate, Mary. I I don't think she's going to use him in an ongoing way. I think if he has to do anything, it'll be purely clean up and probably a restatement of what he's already said privately or in this trial. I think the way they're portraying Olivia and the role here and the deal he's making, it seems to me it's really a just a fresh start life. That's why he can't go back to Houston where he wants to go because he because he really actually enjoyed his time with Aunt Sheila and, and wants to go back to what felt probably for the first time in a long time, a normal life for him. That's why he can't go back there because he's still in danger or too close to the Baxters. Houston and New Orleans are not far enough away from each other, not near enough as you know um mm-hmm. so he so he has to go do a fresh new life but i don't think she's going to continue to use him beyond his role in whatever ongoing baxter trial and and in mafia trial I, I don't think she's going to use him like 21 jump street style to to infiltrate going gangs i think kind of regardless though of how she uses him i think the point is he's going to be used and that's the part where i'm trying to say like it's it's wonderful to watch him smile as he's driving away 
But the experienced part of ourselves have to say, but but you're not getting out of this, you know, like right. you're still well, you're gonna in have the to relive that explosion over and over again. Like and everything his, else, right. whatever else they ask you to do, whatever other situation they ask you to put yourself in, because we watched Michael have to get a job at the butcher and have to sit in the in the Baxter's dining room. Like we watched all the things that they, that he was asked to do that was super difficult for him to do. You know, I, I'm just anticipating that. If there was a season three, which I, I would love to have, and we can focus on Eugene and maybe Fia, I don't know. Obviously, we would want to know as we're getting into the Baxter side of things, like what goes on with, with Gina as the lead. You know, there's a lot going on there. I just, it was a it was a bittersweet, you know, ending for Eugene because I just don't feel like, you know, he ever gets to live like a scot-free, happy life. That's true. And again, you can't mitigate what he went through. So when people say he didn't face justice for killing Adam, true, in a very technical, narrow sense. But on the grand scale of what he did go through, he deserves the best shots, arguably, to get the most normal life, which you're very correct to say won't be normal by any stretch of the imagination. Because again, he just as basic as he won't be able to, he'll have to learn to respond to a new name that's not Eugene Jones. Mm-hmm. You know, I, we were talking about this before I started recording about my name is Mike. So I'm a little desensitized to when I hear pay, if people say Mike or Michael. I don't necessarily whip my head around. If people say Caputo, I do. Mike is a common enough name that you hear in conversation. You don't narrowly respond to it. But if if someone said I couldn't be Mike Caputo anymore, I would be upset about that. It is it is a part of my identity, and it would be very strange for me to not be Mike Caputo anymore. He's he has given up a lot. He has been forced to sacrifice and will continue to have to. I would love to see a five years from now what Eugene's sketchbook looks like. Right. That was one of the recurring threads. That was it was kind of like his baseball, right? It was his sketchbook was part of his journey through what his internal psyche was feeling, the drawings that he was doing where he was reliving the different aspects of the story that we saw play out. I would love to see what is going on in his head five years from now, or even two years from now in his sketchbook. What is he dreaming about? What is he thinking about? What is he drawing and exercising out of him via his drawings? I think it would be, I think it would be very enlightening to see what that looks like. I really hope that, you know, I, I'm going to say two things on this one um, before we leave Eugene. One thing is, and I won't go into great detail on this one. When I was in college, I had a whole moment of being like, it's weird that I have a last name that I would consider my dad's family's last name. And then when I get married, I'm supposed to take my husband's last name. It's weird that at no point in time do I have my own name. Like, I will never have a Mike Caputo name. Like, my name is always in flux and could be if I if I changed who I was married to or if or if I wanted to have you know my maiden name back or whatever like my name is always in flux and your name is like in stone and that feels so strange to me Um, and it's something that I thought about a lot when I was like actually in college I was like I think it's really messed up that you go like from one person's name to another person's name and there's never like my independent name that feels strictly independently mine I don't agree with that 
I don't agree with that at all. Well, you're not a woman, so you don't have to. But you being Caroline Cupstis is no different than me being Mike Caputo. But I felt like I was an extension of my father's family. As me as I was of mine. But I also have to give that up then. Mm, like well. when I, then I have to go to a different clan, you know, well, and it, that, like, it that, feels that, messy. For sure. That is, it is a choice women are unreasonably forced upon. And, and I can tell you from my own experience, not something I ever asked or wanted uh, a partner to do. Uh, in any way, I, it, it, I, because I wouldn't want to do it, and 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 that was how I always broached the subject. I would never take, I would never ask someone to take my name, change their name to take my last name, because I wouldn't do it. Because uh, do I again, I don't have a relationship with my parents, I don't have a relationship with my family, but that name is my name. It is my own personal identity aside from my family. You know, mm -hmm. uh, my, my clan of one or or two, <laughs> as it stands with Tom, as far as Caputos go, but. I would never take my partner's name. So why on earth would I ever expect them to take mine? And, and it's, yeah. it goes into ownership and bullshit like that. And like I said, like transferring, like literally like chattel uh, being traded in clans. But it's a, it's a really strange feeling. And I mean, yeah. it's 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 awesome it that is. you have an opinion on it. But I bet some of our listeners are going to say like, well, your opinion is kind of not that important because you're not a woman who's being asked to change your name. 100%. So it's a tricky, it's but a tricky situation. If you're being asked to change your name, write to me. I will write a forceful <laughs> letter. I will film a forceful video about why you don't need to. Okay. That's a good tricky thing. So here's my other comment on Eugene that I don't want to like overlook. What I'm hopeful for him is that when my experience with TV and witness protection plans, those people never get to be anything cool or good or anything that has anything to do with their actual interests. Like, mm. I would love to see him be able to go to, like, art college or something, you know, and be able to actually do something with all of his creativity. But everything we've seen is, like, you end up working at the Cinnabon or you end up working, you know, some low-level desk job somewhere. Or you're, like, a postman. Well, it kind of... Something that doesn't make sense to Eugene, but is just quiet and can blend in. Well, that's the thing. The, the double-edged short of it is, yeah, we're saying it's a fresh new start but it has it's so not. many it has so many strings because it requires you live a life of anonymity mm -hmm. he and can, can never, never be, be famous enough about who he really is because someone will do facial recognition software on mm. google picture search oh. and realize he looks a lot like <laughs> you know a, a acquitted murderer eugene jones right murderer of adam desiato from the new orleans times or whatever the hell it's called yeah so he oh he forever no matter what he pursues he has to live a quiet life of invisibility which is sad because it really puts a ceiling out of the gate on what he can do and can achieve and just changes everything it yeah. changes everything about what could have happened now for the good and for the bad we might say i want to clarify one thing i disagreed okay. with you about <laughs> receiving your name from your father because we all male or female but per, every person receives their initial name from their from their father's side in this where most people do anyway or or a parental a parent side, side right? a parent side and that is your name I disagree. I, I, I don't think that makes you any less who you are. I agree with you. It is nonsense that you have to feel like you're in flux if you get married two, three, four times that you're going to be expected to change your identity two, three, four times to suit some bullshit ancient tradition back to when. But that is the truth. But it is 100% the, the truth. And that is you know? that is, is abhorrent to me. But I, I my disagreement with you was on the initial name <laughs> that we are no, all we are all reflections of our one parent or the other initially. 
initially. And you just have to carve that as your own identity. After that. It depends, though, on your own family. Like, for me, my maiden name, we have, like, a very strong identity as that. Some people, you just, you get a name, but, like, it's not like you're a part of this group. Like, I have, like, a text thread with, like, all my aunts and uncles on that side of the family on it. And, like, we talk, like, all of my cousins, all of my, and I'm talking, like, my grandmother has 17 grandkids and 17 great-grandkids. All of these people, including their parents, are all on one text thread. Like, we can't even add anymore because we're at the max number. (laughs) And we all celebrate each other's things or we all pray for one another if someone's sick or, like, whatever we need to do. Like, we talk. I'm serious. I get messages on that every single day from cousins and, and family from all over. So, for me, what I'm trying to say is, like, there's such an identity with that name that it's like I came out of the womb like a Cupstis, right? Like, you had to be – it was almost like – it's like joining, like, a military branch. It's like, I'm a Cubstis. That's what I am. And so it's funny because even though I've been married for almost 24 years, it's like, I am not a daily. Like, that's not who I am because I, no part of me is Irish. No part of me has like any of those identities. But like, then you have to change your name like that. I don't know. It's, it is a messy thing. And I'm telling you, when I was in college, I had like an entire, not, I would not say like identity crisis, but like a whole thing of like, what is my name if it can just be given away so easily? You know, if it isn't actually attached to me in any real way, I could just fill out a piece of paper and be someone else. That kind of messes with you about who you really are. And so I could feel it for Eugene. And I could also feel it like it doesn't matter when you change your name. You're actually still the same person. Like I could see both sides of the argument. If it makes you feel better, I'm also not a daily. I don't. I don't <laughs> or any other name that's or been Cupstis. I mean, I'm, I'm sadly not on the Cupstis text thread as much as I would like to be. And I think that would be interesting. <laughs> you get to see my cousin's pitching stats right now. That's what's going on. Hell yeah. I'm all about that. Let's get that ERA down. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you guys, I think that Eugene's story was compelling. I think there was a lot here. I really appreciated, actually, the Lee and Olivia standing there when he comes out of of the prison and there you were you're comparing Olivia to Clarence for all of you guys who don't know go go watch some old movies <laughs> you, you will a, remember who Clarence it's, is it's a wonderful life is the movie we're talking about here that's you what got, we're talking you about Clarence, but I would say that Clarence both Lee, saves his life he does all Lee and Clarence Lee and Clarence Lee and Olivia might just be his like combined Clarence right mm-hmm. like I think he's got some pretty amazing fairy godmothers who are watching after him and to me that's a message unto itself. There was a lot of like women empowerment that happened as this story went on. If you think about how many men were the focus at the beginning, when you say like Jimmy, Michael, Adam, Rocco, Kofi, these were the main people. Okay. And by the end of the story, it's Gina, Fia, Olivia, Lee. Like, I mean, it's, it really changes who all of our focuses are, you know, are being placed on. And that, that was a, that was an interesting switch for me. And, you know, it's certainly far more women led now. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the women who are the only ones really still standing mostly unscathed. Yes, Michael is still alive, but he's back in prison. Yes, Eugene is still alive, but he's not Eugene anymore. And he's he's off being given a new identity. Uh, Jimmy is oh fighting God, for his life. What happened to Jimmy? Yeah, so so let's, <laughs> let's get into the other part of this episode that's not the trial, which is the Baxters and, and Big Mo and Desire wrap up, which is the other episode theme. Simply put, women are bosses. This this episode and then the end, this season, 
really not season one, but I think season two is about the rise of the woman in this series. Them wanting power and taking the steps to take power or, in Big Bo's case, having power and doubling down and cementing that power hold that they have. Depending on whether you're talking about Gina or whether you're talking about Big Mo, or if you're talking about Olivia and what she does and how she uses Nancy and at the end, Nancy and Lee. This is about women standing on top and calling the shots. I don't know if you had asked me back in episode one of season one, I would have predicted. I remember maybe we talked about this. Maybe we talked about this offline about Senator Grandma. We never really focused on the fact that she is a state senator. Mm-hmm. She is an important woman in the state of Nor- of the state of Louisiana. We don't get to see her at 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 work wielding that power, but. She is a significant woman. The fact that she's in that courthouse every day, someone is covering that. Somewhere, someone in Baton Rouge is covering where is Senator Grandma? She's attending the trial back in back in New Orleans. You know, that's news because she's an important woman. This show is littered with important women standing tall, whether they're villains or whether they're heroes is another question. But they're powerful and they are important. And at the end of the day, they're the ones standing on the various mountaintops. That's pretty significant. I I don't think that's anything any one of us would have been able to predict, you know, back in 2020 when we started watching this show. The only reason why it it like stays in the forefront of my brain is because, you know, we've seen a shift towards more female leads and we've seen a shift towards more female heroes, basically. Right. At the end of the day, we're not waiting for our prince to save us anymore in our Disney stories. Right. We're saving ourselves or we're loving our sisters. Love is more important than the love of a man like this kind of stuff. Right. So these are these are the stories that have been coming out more. So that was the only reason why. I had one eye on Gina for sure. You and I talked about that quite a bit about like, are they going to shift the dynamic and have this be a woman, a woman led family, uh-huh. especially because we had um, desire and we had a woman led gang. It seemed natural for Gina to end up, you know, in this power struggle with Jimmy to come out on top. Right. It's part of the bookends, but it's part mm-hmm. of the mirror and the duality of it. Mm-hmm. The, these two criminal enterprises, it feels Who right. Never it feels got along. They, they're kind of intertwined. And at the end, they're very, very explicitly intertwined. But because they also repel each other in a literal sense, you know, Gina is literally repelled by Big Mo, but it almost necessitates that they then have intertwined business at the end of the show again this has been being woven throughout the season we spent time talking at the beginning of the of part 19's episode when carmine and gina are in the car and she mentions running the family he looks like he's gonna poop himself like he he makes like the most like oh kind of like face (laughs) and that gets picked up in this episode right at the beginning of this episode let's play this clip because this is part of setting the table for how the rest of the episode is going to unwind i talked to sal calabri this morning he is not pleased that husband of yours i know the feeling Now, Jimmy doesn't want to run the family. It might be time we take it from him. I completely agree. Maybe I stay here a little while longer and help right the ship. Until when? Until Carlos ready. Papa, I'm ready. Please, let's not have that conversation. 
Captain. If I were your son, I would be the head of this family, and you know I would have done a better job than Jimmy has done. This might seem antiquated to you, but it's just not the way things are done in our business. <laughs> I thought we make the rules. Not this one. I think it's good that he acknowledges the that it's an antiquated policy. And also this powerful man admits that he's a little bit of a beta cuck when it comes to this rule. But then he's equally dismissive by saying, please not let not have this conversation again. Like just kind of patting her on the head and like go away and be quiet about it. It's it's a little duality. It's like I, you're you're probably right, but also I don't want to hear you about it. Yeah, I mean, pretty dismissive and rude, but at the same time, you know what? I mean, I ooh, I feel this. I feel this. Mm, I thought because... you might. I thought you, I, Caroline. I thought you might. <laughs> I won't air all the dirty laundry, but I will say, I recently actually had a conversation with my mom because my kids are older, and there is a new crop of grandkids who are very little, and one of them happens to be a girl. My dad's an avid fisherman, and at some point, all of us kids fished with dad, and at some point we stopped being invited if you're a girl and only my brother was invited it was the first time i was like what the what what like what just happened why did we get cut out and now this new crop of grandkids there's like i said there's a there's a girl in the mix and a boy in the mix and the girl is real excited about fishing and i just like kind of looked at them like there's gonna come a day when you're going to have to have this conversation that's gonna sound a lot like this that's like it's just the way it's always been done i don't want to talk about it blah 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 you can't pee off the boat all that's gonna <laughs> and you're gonna have to hear that crap. And you know what? It gets old. You know, I am with Gina. Like, man, just it, any one of us could have been the fisherman of the year. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't have been picked on gender. It should have been, or who could pee off the boat. It should have just been like, who enjoys fishing, you know? And Gina, you know, she's always had more of a mastermind for this mafia side of things. Like, long game, long game. And, and like cutthroat game. I mean, Jimmy still tries to walk some sort of line of doing it. I don't know if I dare to say like buy the books or what. I don't know what to say. I'm no thief. He walks some line. I don't know what to call it. Cause 'cause you're right. I love that you just said that because you're right. Like, you know, are you really not a thief? Cause we know you are, but he likes to think he's doing it in a more honorable way than Gina does. That was Carmine Um, mocking him while mocking his friend, his standard for stealing candy. For Mark. Mark was his friend. Remember Mark? Yep, I love it. I'm no thief. I love all that. I love it. And it, it, that story, it still sticks with me of like, if you hang out with that person and you're you're getting the, the windfall, are you not a thief? Like, good question. Well, it, it, that and the elitism of it all is the you're not better than me just because mm-hmm. you don't you refuse to get your hands dirty. So yeah. here's Gina. Miss, like, can't wait to get her hands dirty. I you know what? I think she is better cut out to do what she wants this family to do than Jimmy was. It was it wasn't really a matter that Jimmy didn't have what it took to be a part of the Conti family. He didn't want to run the Conti family. You know, he wanted it to be the Baxter family and mm-hmm. he wanted the Baxter family to run differently than the Conti family did. So going back to the names thing, God, talk about how important names are. The Conti family, the Baxter family, like who you belong to, what clan you claim matters all day long, you know, and she calls herself a Conti till the last second you know she calls herself a conti and takes steps to execute that plan Mm -hmm. and execute everybody and not only does she i was gonna make a cannoli joke when you said get her hands dirty 
because you said, you know, she, she wants to get her hands dirty. And I said, not just by making cannolis either, even though it still looked delicious and I still would have eaten it, even with the high possibility it was poisoned. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, she, I mean, talk about doubling down on the name. You're, you're 100% right. She, she is a Conti. She identifies as Conti, not as Baxter. And she takes the steps to throw off that name to, to, to not only reject it, but to, to, kill it and bury it and put it in the ground uh in in not everyone does that i, I mean f- faults and she's got plenty of them gina is not a wilting wallflower she she is taking steps after playing a a, a two season long game of manipulating from behind the scenes you know whispering in frankie's ear talking to her father uh, undermining jimmy or countermanding him or questioning his his decisions she emerges in this episode and takes stand. She takes steps and she carries it out, which we're going to get to because I have a great Godfather analogy for that. But we got to get to the big Mo side of it because they're both running on on different tracks that then cross each other in this episode. So you have Gina having that conversation again with her father, but in a more definitive way, he shuts her down that you will never run this family. It will be me. It will skip over you. Then it will be Carlo. Women can't do this. That's that's the Gina track. Let's get to the big Mo track and her long game that she's playing in this episode. Hotel Evan don't suit you, Jimmy. Well, as far as dog houses are concerned, I guess it could be worse. Take a mighty shiny piece of jewelry to mend fences with the missus, huh? What do you want? French Quarter. You control the streets, the police, all of that. One desire to have free reign. I have no interest in the drug business. And the drug business ain't got no interest in you. I just want your blessing. Expand my operation in the neighborhood. Now, why would I agree to that? Because I sell you the club. And that, as far as your wife is concerned, is shinier than a hope diamond. Not and Gina hate more than look across that street and see me. Think of how happy she'd be if you gave it to her. Your offer is rejected. Given what comes next in this storyline, do you think Big Mo went into the bar at Baxter House knowing that Jimmy was going to say no and she was and it was just part of her plan? She had to do this step so she could do the next step that she does? Or does she come up with the next step because he rejects her so fucking fast? I am going to go with that she probably had like a if then situation in her head. Like, Mm, like I'm going to offer this up first. And if this happens, then I'm going to do that. And I think that she always has a long game brewing in her brain. That's why I think she she is such a successful leader at the end of the day. Does she always keep her gang and everybody on track? No, not always. I mean, she definitely got sidetracked in this entire series. We saw her confused where she should be putting her attention, but she still retains this leadership vibe that that is undeniable you know she manages to keep it this whole time so i think that she would have been happy if jimmy would have accepted this but by no means was that going to be like the last efforts that she put into this and she totally smelt the strife between gina and jimmy and knew that she could easily weasel herself weasel herself between them 
you could say again, a lot of things about Big Mo, not having information is not one of the things you can level against her. She is well informed when she walks into the Baxter house about Jimmy's living situation and the marital strife and the role she plays in that. Guessing that Gina doesn't like looking across the street and seeing her is one thing. Knowing it to the extent that you can say it so definitively as she does in that clip is a whole other thing. Like she's got her information. Who's ever her stool pigeon is is informing her well about what the situation is in the Baxter marriage, which I appreciate. I mean, I'm a man who appreciates information and good source information. So we've got both of our ladies on their tracks in this episode. Now it's time for them to cross, and they cross. Fittingly, they cross each other. That their paths cross in the middle of the street between the Baxter house and Desi Boulay. It's it's a nice metaphor that they intersect literally in the intersection so let's listen to uh big mo springing the trap that is uh, put in put in motion after jimmy rejects her what the hell do you want i was hoping to talk to the man in the house he's indisposed oh that's too bad just curious to see if you're giving any more thought to my offer he rejected that. what offer oh he didn't tell you i tried to sell him the club Knew you want to get me off the block, but uh, guess it doesn't matter to him. Excuse me. Now that's my long game. What happened, darling? What's wrong? What? what? It's Jimmy. He blames me for what he did to that Jones family. He's always held it against me. It's all right. It'll be okay. Oh, but he's going to confess to the police. What? And he's threatened to implicate me, too, because he hates me. He told me that. He wants to take me down. He's going to destroy us. Is he in his room? And we know that Carmine then wields his gun out in the open, walking through the hallways and shoots Jimmy pretty point blank in the chest and then stands over him and says, you endeavor my family. Then Gina calls 911 and turns her father in. So significant things happen in just a matter of minutes here. Big Mo springs her trap. She calls it her long game. She by she knows exactly what she's doing here by mentioning that Jimmy was made this offer and rejected it, even though she even though it would have made Gina happy. And Gina clearly had this plan and has just been waiting for the point to put it into action. So it seems to me very clear it was never a matter if for Gina to do this. It was just a matter of when. How did you take the scene? What did you think of this scene and her crocodile tears? Well, that conversation with her dad, I mean, really started this ball rolling when you think about the idea that, you know, she was she gave like a Hail Mary pass to him of like, I could lead the family. And when he really shut that down, that let her know that she not only had Jimmy in the way, but her father was in the way. You know, if this thought process continued, she was never going to be allowed to be in control of the family. 
you know, as much as it's like she turned her father in, it's like mm, she she removed the obstacles in the in the way of being able to lead the family. And those two, Jimmy and her father, were the obstacles. I feel like we saw this coming. I think even at the, the there was there's different periods of time when they would stand on the balcony when you kind of got that vibe of like, we are going to see this again where she's just standing on the balcony like queen. And when it happened, I was like, damn, you know, watching Carlo like take the take the necktie off. And and if you guys remember the whole spiel he got from Jimmy about not wearing the necktie because that shows that you don't bow down to other people, you are the authority and and all this stuff. I mean, man, I just it was so powerful and the way that she took control, I mean I understand. I really do understand that there was absolutely no other way for her to be in this position. And they did such a good job of laying the breadcrumbs before you got to that point. Like her getting so upset in the in the monitor room. It was like if you didn't feel that scene coming way back when they're walking in the park, go back and rewatch and, and watch how she is like gaining momentum. Like you can see the fire and the flames growing all the way until there's like an inferno when it's in that monitor room. But I've got to say, actually seeing Jimmy Baxter take those bullets, I gasped. Like, I was like, oh my God. And I know we're going to talk about the montage of where everyone ended up, but damn, I mean, I him and Michael felt very untouchable to me in this story. Like, these two guys are going to be the ones who don't, they don't get shot. Like, they have to deal with all of the fallout of people getting killed around them. And the, but, but they always rise up. So to actually see him go down in that pool of blood, holy smokes. I mean, what did you think when you saw those shots actually hit him? Oh, it was crazy. It, it, it was so, it was so blatant. It was so sloppy. And Gina didn't turn off the camera or anything. That's what let you know that like she was fully intending on turning her father in and removing. Oh yeah, that no, obstacle. it was. I had no. Uh, she yeah. could have turned it off and allowed there to be no evidence of who shot him. Oh no, hundred percent. She uh, she knew exactly what she was doing. The way she was calm and the the way the ice comes into her veins when she says "excuse me" to Big Mo on the street. Again, it wasn't a matter of. If it was just when she knew she'd find she knew as soon as Carmine entered the door, it's like, go, you know, and the Oscar for best dramatic performance goes to Gina Baxter in the security room because she had it ready. And the second he walks out, I originally I left that clip playing until you heard the door slam, because visually when that door slams, she just takes her she takes her arm and she just wipes her tears and boom, she's perfectly fine. It is a master stroke of manipulation that few people could pull off, but it's exactly what Gina Baxter is about. It is how she had it's the last time she's ever had to, quote unquote, use Use a woman's weakness in order to manipulate a man who's standing above her. Because with this last manipulation, she has now ascended the throne and is the head of the Conti Baxter family. It's a fucking masterstroke. And to use a quote unquote woman weakness crying because of her mean husband crying to her father to deal with it. She has in one swoop taken out both men who stand above her and hold her back. It's, I'm gonna it's, I'm gonna I'm gonna genius. shed a little bit different light on the concept of the crying scene because I know you're focused on the fact that she's crying, but I'm gonna focus on the fact that she actually used 
his ego, his like desire to protect his family in order to get him to act. Oh, yes. That's yes. A, that. Well, but that's a twist on what you're saying. Like you're taking like when you present it as the woman starts crying, there's a damsel in distress. So now they all have to mount up on their horses. Well, and daddy, it's, it's a crying to her daddy about her mean husband. You know, but she's right. not just crying about my mean husband crying about how our family is going to be taken down by my mean husband. So then this is all Conti ego. This is all, uh, you're not going to, Jimmy Baxter's not going to take down my family. You can take it like he's protecting his daughter, but you can take it like my massive ego. I'm the leader of the Conti family, and this is an attack against my gang, my Conti gang, uh, by this Baxter man. I agree now with you. I'm going to go attack, and, and I understand you can take it at that microcosm level of just this is a, this is a woman. I, I think, I think they're Dad one in the and the same husband. with me. I think I think appealing to her in the daddy roles because he is the his ego is the daddy of the Conti family. For me, I think it's entwined. But I 100 percent agree with you when he stands over the bleeding body and says, "You were never my family." That's ex- you're exactly what you're saying is what was what he's saying there is you you're not gonna you're not gonna cost me everything I've worked for and and built. Yeah, because uh, yeah. he doesn't say, "How dare you try to hurt my baby girl?" Right. If he said that, I would give everything to your first comment and say. Nope, your theory is 100% right. This is a daddy-daughter thing. But the fact that he defends his family says it didn't matter that Gina was crying. It mattered the fact that she was saying your family is being attacked. And so you need to do something about this. That's why I take it more to be this larger ego. And, And playing a man's ego off is like, you know just it's it's funny to watch her do it because it's like yeah that's the way to go girl like you fucking did it and you know what you know why i give her extra credit on this because she didn't just lose it on these guys one and done she kept coming back to them she kept trying to get jimmy to listen to her now whether or not her approach was right or wrong Everyone can debate whether or not she she was too aggressive or too strong or too whatever with with the way that she wanted to handle, you know, their turf and all that kind of stuff. Everybody can debate whether she was right or wrong. But her approach, she gave her father that extra chance, that one last chance of like, listen, man, I'm laying it out here. I think I can lead the family. And when she was shut down there and she shut down by Jimmy all these different times, you can't come to the mayor meeting, all that kind of stuff. Guess what? Those two men, like their fates were sealed because they didn't pay attention to the fact that she had any moves to make. Yeah. They just assumed she had no moves to make, that she had no cards to hold. And she just played them off of each other, which is like brilliant. And maybe you can you can give Carmine a pass one because he hadn't actively been living in New Orleans and and around. It seemed a little bit like he was you know aging quite a bit, and yes. I kind of feel and, like and not he sharp. was. But yeah, but Jimmy knew knew actively that Gina was going around his back in what she and she in that she was using Frankie to carry out orders that were not sanctioned by him. Just her the way she would pipe up her opinions, and then he would learn later on that she had put stuff into motion jimmy should have known better that not only was she capable but that she would in fact do this if he didn't if he didn't heed her he very much sealed their own fates by not listening to her i think you're 100 percent right 
It's a very good. It's a very good warning when you say to to other people, <laughs> if someone continues to come to you and continues to ask you about something, you might want to pay a little more attention because you never know. You never know. My experience is that women are usually playing four D chess when men are playing checkers badly. So <laughs> I think that's a lesson everyone should learn. But and uh, you know, but why would that be? Why would that be? Because we we have been given so many less opportunities. We have to seek them out and we have to find those little cracks in, you know, in the way that the system works in order to get in there and say, no, you know, we're going to do this differently. And here's the deal. At the end of the day, am I like, ha ha ha, I'm a fellow woman. This is awesome. I think Gina's going to rule. No, I think Gina is a freaking hothead. No, I don't know what no. this woman's going to do. She's probably going to explode yeah. this whole place. But I give her kudos the same I would give a man to say, man, you freaking wanted that. You wanted that position and you got it. So for that, I say, you go, you did it. You friggin' accomplished it. Am I scared as hell for all of New Orleans? Yeah, because I think that Gina Conti is after y'all. Yes. And, and there's one final clip in this big mo slash Gina ascendancy. Oh, let's just play it because then I'll then I'll like, go back and make my point. You can sell anywhere in the quarter, except on my street. I'm looking forward to a new era in our special relationship. I mean, the turning over the keys, jangling there, and and, and it should not be lost on anyone, her emphasis on my street. It was not only well written, but it was extremely well delivered by Hope Davis. And it came with bold underlying italicies when she says it. I think Hope Davis killed it. And now I, I feel like I've seen her in a couple of other shows. And when I see her now, my eyes are just like automatically going to her because because of this role because mm -hmm. really i'm expecting to see gina conti baxter and and most of the time actually when i've seen her in other roles she's really playing these like kind of background or kind of quieter roles she's not she's not being this woman this woman i want to see a lot more of like i think that she is fascinating same with big mo she's under the same category like these women in power and these leadership positions i want to see how it's played out and i really i'm fascinated by how we change our language and we change like you know we say things like a man's assertive a woman's aggressive like you know we use like different terminology and stuff and that's why i'm trying to be like very conscientious about you know like i have I don't think it's awesome that Gina's the head of anything just because she's a woman, like, and I'm a fellow woman. I think that I am fascinated by what she would choose to do because I think she's going to choose to do things differently than the men. But I don't know what that's going to look like or even that it's like great decision making for her family. Having drugs all around the hotel that's not just like, you know, yes, it's not on their one street, but damn, I mean, she's changing the face of the city in a pretty major way. By this decision that she's making. Now, of course, there was other drug dealers and stuff. Don't get me wrong. It's not like there wasn't that going on. But, you know, she she giving her like this like sanctioned blessing on Big Mo. It feels like, I don't know, like they, like they, they could really have started something here that could be very explosive. In the 1972 Francis Ford Coppola cinematic classic, The Godfather, the end of that movie is Michael Corleone in church uh, at, the, at the baptism of his nephew, Connie's son. He's being installed as the godfather. 
at the same time, outside of the church, around the city, Michael is having all of his enemies killed at the same time. It is a mass hit, all con- all all conducted simultaneously while he's in church renouncing Satan. And and if you've never seen The Godfather, it's a great movie. You should go see it. But this scene in particular is my favorite of any scene in any movie ever. It has stayed with me since I was 11 and I first saw The Godfather. It remains my favorite scene in any movie. I think it's powerful. I think it is a masterstroke in leadership and 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 a seizing power when when there may be those that are trying to prevent you from taking power because as he is becoming the godfather to Connie's son and renouncing satan in the church you're watching all of his enemies be killed which allows him then in the next scene he is now the godfather because he is literally the last one standing all of his enemies have been vanquished in one fell swoop and there is no one left to block his rise to power and he becomes the godfather you know he famously closes the door on k and he as he conducts his first meeting as the godfather of k is his wife and it's very powerful it's an extremely powerful scene it's one like i said it's my favorite in any movie ever this whole end to the episode with Gina is her godfather moment. It is her biding her time until she till the cards are all in the right place for her to lop the heads of off all of snakes that stand in front of her and she seizes her power that had been being blocked to her and she does it at the same time in one stroke and it is a genius master stroke in seizing power when it's being denied to you. Gina will be a bloodthirsty psychopath as the head of the Conti family, worse than her father, I think, probably ever was, certainly worse than Jimmy was in in terms of bloodshed and the good of the city and legitimacy. I think she will be very effective as the head of a crime family, but I think that will be very bad for the streets of Charlie's city and Charlie's Figaro's headache as mayor of, of New Orleans. But uh, you can't deny the style points with which she achieves her aims. I'm uber impressed with everything that she did. And in all honesty, when I think about it, like the whole concept of, you know, having a new leader come in, you know, tonight is the succession finale. and, And that's, you know, all we've been all watching for how many seasons, five seasons now, waiting to see who gets to ascend the throne. And that is the whole feeling behind, I think, both Big Mo's story and Gina's story is like this whole, like, can you hang on to the leadership position? Will people still follow you? You know, will you be able to do this? And in thinking of things like succession, and I'm not going to give anything away, For those of you who have not watched, I I do think about when there's been some times when one of them does have to come into power in some, even a small way, how ruthless they can be and how much they feel like they have to be ruthless in order to show how much of a leader they are. They have to do these outrageous things, fire someone or do something outrageous just to be like, I am the one in charge here. You know, I think we've seen this historically. I'm not, I don't have a historical reference to give you off the top of my head, but I can tell you that I can feel like there's been plenty. Plenty of stories, especially like kings and stuff, where when they like come in, there's like first thing I'm gonna do is cut everybody's head off, and then now you'll all have to respect me. <laughs> it's like that kind of move happens all the time, right? It's like you have to do something wicked outrageous in order to get everybody's respect, like on day one. I see that with Gina, and I see that Big Mo has done things like that. Like remember when we had that scene in the warehouse where she's had to do things that are ruthless in order to say like, nope, I'm in charge, you know, and this is the way it goes. I I suspect these two are going to be 
really, really insane leaders in the, in the city and that, that really bring a lot of, of havoc, I think. Let's get to the final montage. Um, it kicks off with, uh, as Desebule is being shut down, it's Big Mo and Little Mo are there in their final moments at the club. Uh, they're getting ready to literally turn off the lights and lock it up because they've now handed the keys over to Gina and they have their their path is clear now to take over the French Quarter, which really will let them take over the city in a definitive way. Little Mo says, well, you know, we're going to start printing money now. Uh, a, a young singer comes in. He's looking to audition because he had heard that the club uh, in the wake of Janelle leaving was looking for music. Uh, Big Mo turns him down, says, you're going to have to speak to the new owners across the street, but then says, why don't you play? Actually, let's hear what you get. Sets up his guitar. This person is uh, Jor L. Quinn. He is the musician in the scene, and he's the one who's actually singing the song that we hear. He begins to play Make It Rain, which is a song by Foy Vance, but it was made most popular by Ed Sheeran. That's the version most people are going to know. The lyrics are interesting. It's a good song. It's a blues song the way he plays it. The first opening lines are, Where the sins of my father weigh down in my soul, and the pain of my mother will not let me go. Something in those two lines apply to all of our characters in this show at some point uh and and family at the end of the day i think the show was very much about family and loyalty and and like the tagline said at the beginning of the show when it first started way back when how far are you willing to go you know for for your son but writ larger how far are you willing to go to sacrifice for your for your family here are the montage items that we see uh michael throws the baseball in the river we talked about that eugene smiles as the bus drives into his new life we talked about that Charlie, Charlie, who we had seen in this episode, but has zero lines, has no lines here, but he's in a meeting in his office. He's still the mayor. He looks a little thoughtful, but it looks like it's pretty much business as usual for him. What are your final thoughts on Charlie? What are your final thoughts on his role here and and the world that is now that he's now facing with his best friend going back to jail and these two women standing taller than ever running the crime in his city? Damn. I mean, it's such a huge question. I mean, Charlie, to me, the relationship between Charlie and Michael really was like the heart of this story. They, they would bring it back to this place of being like human at times when it felt like everybody was just so diabolical in the things that they were doing and the choices they were making. It seemed like the relationship between Charlie and Michael would like remind us of their humanity. They would be the only times of the show when we'd have some laughter. We'd have some actual like soft would be when Charlie was, you know, maybe having a conversation with Senator Grandma or having a conversation with um, with Adam. These were the times when, like, we got all this emotion coming out. So for me, seeing him looking out the window, um, you know, with the with the people having the meeting behind him and just kind of realizing that. He's a man who is in these circumstances now, which he was so excited to be in. But for all the things that have been sacrificed to get there, all the relationships, all the backroom deals, all the things that he had to do, you could see on his face like this burden on his shoulders. You know, he was looking over the city, not with like excitement and and with like, you know, oh, I, I really got this in hand. He looked distraught. He looked like he was concerned looking out over his city. So to me, me, even though we know, you know, he wouldn't know the details of, of things like, you know, Gina and everything that went on or Big Mo. At the same time, it seemed like he knew, you know, like there was like a cloud over him, like a Ziggy cloud, like he knew he he was really about to deal with a lot. So I, I feel for Charlie and I know that Charlie made 
bad choices and really, you know, we can really question for a long time about what he did. You know, everything surrounding Robin's death. I mean, I think that really made all of our eyes twitch, you know, when we were, when we figured out that Charlie had anything to do with that. But at the same time, I mean, he really grounded Michael. I mean, he gave him this past, you know, the six-year-old little guy past. He, for me, he, he made Senator Grandma come to life because of their relationship and everything. So, God, I, I loved the ad of Charlie and I loved the way he was written. And I really felt his heavy heart at the end go i agree with all that i'm just gonna a little bit of levity here go watch isaiah whitlock jr in cocaine bear also in it but isaiah whitlock yes. is the as the uh sheriff <laughs> in that movie is hysterical and uh, super entertaining and definitely my favorite part of that movie so uh yeah, go, go watch him there yeah no charlie charlie is going to it's a it's a classic story of what do we sacrifice to obtain what we want most that once we get there, we look back and we look behind us and none of none of the people are around us anymore. We've lost everyone, even our crooked cops that were posing as maybe friends in, in you know, in a desperate moment. We maybe think of them as friends are still go- are gone. There's no one left. Charlie. He's got no one left in his confidant circle. He is a man all alone. At the time when his city will be tested the most, it has not. If he's thought that his first year as mayor has been hard, I don't think he has any idea what he's in store for now in in the fictional season three and beyond. Um, without any allies, uh, like close, dependable, steadfast, reliable allies by his side through the wake of terror that I think Big Mo and Gina will rain down on the city. Uh, they will make it rain, as the song says. <laughs> yes. You know, we got to talk about that Make It Rain song for a minute because I actually had to like text you when I was rewatching because that Make It Rain song was so beautiful, I thought. And then I'm watching the scene as we're getting up to Jimmy laying in bed and I was hearing different tones happening. And I was like, I got to talk to my music man, Mike, and be like, are you hearing what I'm hearing? Because I am hearing this like Italian godfather. And I don't know the right terminology. So you'll have to correct me, but I'm using the word trill because I don't know what word to use. But like the way that they were kind of playing on, it would have been like a piano in Godfather, but this was like a, uh, like, it was a like a synthesizer. Or, yeah. What was the thing? What do we know? Like a keyboard is what I would have called yeah, it. Back, keyboard in, the, or synthesizer, back yeah. in the uh, middle school days when yeah. we all had our keyboards and we were all playing you know like the human voice like remember that yeah yeah so moog yeah yeah, playing on your moog that's what it's called it's moog the the moog has became the most popular of like the 80s keyboards and like the new wave see you guys i wasn't joking he is the music man yeah i mean all you guys listen to how they do the moog synthesizer but neither here nor there but it made those sounds like no no you're 100 right it's they take the blues riff it's a pretty standard blues riff that he's singing on um um, and then a couple of scenes before Jimmy's hospital scene, uh, over over the lower tone blues riff, there is a like a higher pitched like sixteenth note, like a ding kind of sound, and it's very like old world. You're in Sicily as like you know a, a, an overweight grandma serving you sauce, and like guys are maybe like slinging guns out in the courtyard. I don't think you're allowed to call a grandma overweight. I think you just have to be like, you know, like a, uh, okay, like, a, so yeah, like, a like, an Ita- like an Italian grandma about to serve you Sunday dinner. 
uh, you know, as like the sun is setting over the hills of Sicily. It's like it's oh. like there's that like that like 16th note kind of like going on there. You don't really. Yeah, exactly. You don't really notice it, actually, until until he opens his eyes and they Caroline calls you (laughs) and then they cut away from Jimmy waking the hospital. And then the right after his eyes are open, they cut to Nancy and Michael in the car. And when that happens, the piano, that high part we're talking about ends abruptly. As soon as they cut away from Jimmy's eyes opening, it ends and a guitar solo starts to soar. And that's when you notice it because they had introduced it a little before Jimmy's scene. The abrupt end to it is like, oh, what did I just listen to? And then you go back and then you, then you get like the uh, the kind of godfathery overtones. Um, yeah, it was, it was a cool. great call. Very I, was, cool. I, I, I mean, how did you feel when we saw Jimmy's eyes open? I mean, that well, part I, was I wanna, like, I want to oh. go down. I want to keep going down the finale montage. In order, I know, but I'm out of order. I understand. Yes. Judge. So, so after Charlie we cut to Carmine having a sad in his jail cell, but this is, this is one of my favorite parts of it. And I know we, 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 uh, we were a little rough on Olivia's storyline because it didn't seem, it, it seemed either not enough or or too much right it was it was inconsistent in how it got presented but her standing outside of his jail cell when the door opens and smiling like the cat that ate the canary made me laugh out loud every single time i watched the scene and it made me smile so there there is an infectious nature uh about rosie perez that just shines through in that one little moment and and instantly i was back on on olivia's side again so she was what, so pleased with herself that so face pleased like, for yes. herself <laughs> so i mean the, i mean which which is an interesting thing again let's talk about fictional season three is is she you know as kwai Wan jin wisely said to Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Phantom Menace, there's always a bigger fish. So mm-hmm. is is Carmine the next on her list to try and get to the bigger fish on the Eastern Seaboard crime syndicate family? Yes, sir, he is. Yes. So that that's kind of delicious to think about. Like, what does that smile mean? What is Carmine? What is he going to have to go through just based on what we've seen her put Michael through this season? What are we what is Carmine going to have to jump through on Olivia's leash so he's not spending the rest of his years inside some federal penitentiary? Uh, Delicious, delicious and wonderful. And that little smile and smirk she gives. uh, I think it said like a thousand words from there. We get a, a quick little scene of Michael and senator grandma seemingly saying goodbye to each other she's clearly told him that he's clearly told her that he's returning to prison and i think these two really as much as she as michael and charlie grew apart this season i feel like senator grandma and michael came together in equal measure oh yes so which makes it bittersweet right they just finally finally these two are family in a real way and now he's leaving again and depending on how long his sentence is going to be, maybe this is the final time that they see each other. So it makes it very bittersweet. It was a very quick little scene in this overall montage. But again, it was just kind of the pangs of family and sacrifice and, and the things we've lost just when just when they're maybe getting back together again. This was the most terrifying of it. You have Carlos taking off his tie. 
mm-hmm. uh, as he heads out to the balcony. I told you guys two episodes ago, don't let Carlo take off his tie. It means he's not reporting to someone, and we do not want a rogue Carlo running around the streets of anywhere, fictional or otherwise. He is a loose cannon worse than his mother because he doesn't have a remote fraction of the brains of his mother and that punchable face of his, and we don't want him taking off his tie. It means bloodshed is a coming. This is the most scary thing of anything I've seen in this show was Carlo taking off that fucking tie during the montage. I like that you said a coming. It's a come hide your hide your children, <laughs> button down your hatches, put up button them down, even yeah, batten them batten down, them down yeah. like Baton Rouge, put up the storm uh, no, windows, not like Baton Rouge. <laughs> put up your storm windows. Hurricane Carlo is a coming. Everyone, for for all of you guys who live in the South, we don't have storm windows. Ignore what Mike's saying. Put up your plywood. All right, your plywood. That's what we do. (laughs) Anyway, Carlo, Hurricane Carlo is a coming, and you guys need to prepare because yes, that tie coming off is we want we want flashlights, we want bottled water, water. Yes, you got to yeah, water and gumbo. You've got to you've got to you've got to stockpile all of it because you don't know when you're going to get out again. And propane, propane, so that you can cook on the grill. Yeah, y'all need to move out to the swamp where Robin's ex-lover was living. That's the where swamp. you guys. That's where you guys need to go out in the, uh, the bayou, bayou. Out in the yep. bayou. There I, you uh, go. I was you using. I, I'm using synonyms because I love uh, that you said storm windows. You're so funny. We don't. We don't change out our windows like you guys do. Now, finally, Jimmy wakes up in the hospital. Mm, I mean, you, it, now, can I ask you what you thought of it? Uh, yes. <laughs> Jimmy waking up was a wonderful twist. I, I, it hadn't even occurred to me because the series ending, it hadn't even occurred to me that they would dangle this wonderful treat. And when we talked to Joey, it was the first thing I said. I said, the second you had him open his eyes, you knew we had to ask you about season three. Of all of the things that we've talked about that would set up a season three, Gina and yeah. Big Mo's reign, Charlie's reign as, as mayor, uh, all of that. Him opening his eyes is the most baity, right? It's the most dangling a bait for this story could continue. There is more to tell here if he is actually alive. And why introduce that fact other than setting up a, a season three? And, and what does that world look like for Gina if, in fact, Jimmy is alive? Because I think she only called 911 pretty certain that Jimmy would die and it was nothing more than a token gesture i don't think she anticipated him living so what does that spell i don't know i don't spells know trouble. Real spells, trouble spells trouble for everyone no it was it was it was you have to do like this i can't do it loud right here in river city i, I hit my hand on the on the desk are you doing like a music man thing yeah right here in, it's trouble right here in river city oh Caroline's warming up her 76 trombones. She's getting ready to come on through. 76 always ready. As I button down my batten down my storm windows. You're going to button um, down your storm I'm gonna windows. I'm going to button down my storm windows with my gumbo, stockpiled gumbo. <laughs> and, and Which will last all of all of a couple of hours cuz you have no electricity. I'll eat it cold. The, the, and spoiled and expired. How many Nothing days before like it turns spoiled? I probably get 5 days uh, out of it. Anyway. <laughs> He's a metaphorical hurricane. I don't think he's going to take out the power grid. I think I he's hope just, he does. I think, I think he will. He's so he's so wild. He'll take out the power grid. Sure, he would. He'll he'll breach react- the levees. What was your reaction to Jimmy opening up his eyes? Holy shit! That was my reaction. I was like, oh, 
because it was exactly what you said. It was like it was the absolute cracking the door open to like what's next. Everything else felt like closing doors, everything else. And this felt like someone just kicked the door wide open, like, uh, uh-uh, hold up. Nuh-uh, sister, wait a minute. It, 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 it was the thing that got me most excited and actually lit a little flicker of hope for a season three. And and damn you, Joey, if in fact it turns out to be for not. But I don't at least think it's you know, Joey. I think it's I think it's going to be a damn yeah. you, Showtime for for giving us hope. I mean, it's there's no reason not to. Yellow Jackets is the only other show y'all got. Just give us, you know, it's a one-two punch. Have your honor lead into Yellow Jackets just like they did in this season. These are these are, these two are shows that pair well together. Your honor ended. Yellow Jackets began. Season three could be the exact same thing for both shows. Come on, get on it. Do it. Introduce Coach Ben into the world of Your Honor. Oh my God! I don't know. He's probably <laughs> dead. He's probably dead by the time or, or oh, eaten by the say. time this uh, this episode is airing. Um, I did it actually out of order. So after Carlo takes off his tie, he comes out to the balcony. Him and him and Gina survey their newfound kingdom it's very uh mufasa and simba you know all the things the light touches except for the elephant graveyard and then big mo comes out smiles at gina as they put the padlock on desi boulet i mean these two these two women are just at the top of their world as this finale finishes up we've been talking about it there are so many different scenes where they are triumphant that smile she gives her and the way it feels like the entire world is now at her feet really triumphant really triumphant i mean it, big mo had this whole arc of was she going to refocus it was one of our questions from last from last episode to the finale in the wake of being left by her girlfriend was she going to refocus on running desire and and taking a, a more firm hand on the on the wheel because she had been letting things slip she had been getting a little sloppy there were people dying on her watch there was bad press out for desire i think that smile and the deal she made for herself is indisputable proof that she is in fact going to very much double down on the future of desire though i have to ask you caroline is there a hint of sadness the fact that she lets uh Jorrel quinn sing make it rain and and sing the sad song in this club that she opened for her daddy is there a part of her did you feel a part of her a little bit of sadness that she's not running this club anymore Yeah, I think especially when they zoomed in on the chains on the door, I think that that was when I really felt a moment of just regret, remorse, sadness that she couldn't make it work, Um, you know, and then and and it was quickly it was it was very it was a very quick moment because then she glances up and sees Gina and Carlo and, you know, just kind (laughs) of does like the kind of kind of sound you do with your teeth like suck your teeth like okay this is like now these are the two i'm in bed with you know and and she got you know she flips flips switches pretty quick there which you know is a sign of a good leader to me like she has to check out the situation and be like you know what this is crazy and i'm sad but then this is this is tomorrow's work is happening right over here so she's i think she has her head on straight i think she knows what's up and what's coming the question always ready. the question always for Big Mo and for Desire at Large is for how long and at what cost does she get to run Desire slash does Desire get to run wild in this city? Of uh, uh, more so than the Baxter family where very other than Frankie's unfortunate beatdown at the hand of Jimmy and Jimmy's unfortunate shooting at the hands of his father-in-law, very few violent things happen to members of the Baxter family. Desire is littered 
with bodies and in bad and ill feelings and bloodshed and not to mention Roderick and his and his international employers and and them being mixed up with that. So I feel like there is always a clock ticking over the head of Desire and specifically over the head of Big Mo, which is an interesting thought again for the season that we hope comes is at what cost does it what's the cost on her and her life to run this desire to run desire and have this limitless power or what seems to her like limitless power final thing after jimmy opens his eyes is michael michael is dropped off at the prison by nancy he gets out he looks around he puts his shoulders back he puffs out his chest and in, in a very tight fitting shirt with an undershirt underneath it and he waltz back into prison to serve out his sentence presumably i, I want to talk about this i'm curious what your take on this was we talked about this with joey what does it mean why is he going back i don't think anyone is quite sure that you can just show back up at prison without being admitted <laughs> and walk through the gates but let's put that aside because i let I mean, obviously, we didn't have time to go through all the machinations of him returning to jail. But where I want to start with is that is a wordless scene in that car. I've watched it carefully several times. Nancy's lips never move. She looks, she pulls in, she stops, she looks to her right at him, he gets out of the car, and then she drives away. Her lips never move. She does not say anything to him in that car. That is awkward as fuck. You imagine I, I I talk to my Uber drivers when they drop me off places, and they talk to me. <laughs> she is let she is letting him off at prison, and her she never says anything. Now he may say something to her. We're kind of fo- focused on her face, but Amy Landecker's lips never part. She, Nancy doesn't say anything in that car. That would be generally a very quiet ride, you know. I feel like what what are you saying in those moments? You know that I, I've got to think that Michael is so in his head, and Nancy's got a thousand things she'd probably want to say. But I don't know. It just it feels like out of just respect for the heaviness of the situation. I think I'd be pretty quiet. I, I don't think I'd say much. Or what is there left to say, though, too, I guess? It's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, when I think back to the scenes that that really changed everything with Nancy and Michael, I think about everything, you know, showing up at that house and, and her having to confront the cop, the crooked cop, and and them, like, realizing what happened with Robin. And, you know, they they have had such a, such a, a time together, you know? Like this journey has been long and fraught with crazy moments. I think there would be something about it where Nancy would have to have a lot of respect for him to want to finish out his sentence and want to go back and 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 be punished for the things that he did. That was kind of like her thing was like she was pissed that he was like getting away with stuff. And so this is like different. This is like, you know, no, I'm, I'm going to take my punishment. And so I don't know what would be left to say. I really don't. I, I think that there would be a lot of just quiet respect in that car. Oh, that was a long sigh. I'm trying to decide. If, uh, I'm trying to decide if I have anything to add to that because I've thought about it a lot. Because it, I, just imagining the the situation. Knowing our personalities, we would want to talk to one another because yeah. we would want to reassure one another. But I think at this point, again, you have to remember where Michael is. Yeah. I mean, he he is not the Michael that she started off with, you know, and so much has, has happened. Well, let's play that out, though. So why is he going back? Why is he going back to prison do you think beyond he may actually have to now that his work for Olivia is finished and Nancy 
wants him to finish out his sentence, right? She had been threatening him all season long. Once she's done with you, meaning Olivia, I'm next and you're going back to jail. Uh, that aside, which very may, may well be the entirety of the reason, why else do you think he would be going back to prison? Well, in our conversation with Joey, I do feel like that he explained to all of us that sacrifices were necessary for everybody in the story. And, and in order for them to be able to even move anywhere closer to any type of ending or conclusion, they would have to make a sacrifice. And for Michael, first of all, remember, he didn't want to come out of prison. You know, it's not like he escaped and like now he has to go back. Like, no, he was pulled out of prison by Olivia and then manipulated this whole time. He did not want to be doing this. So it's it's not quite the same thing watching him walk back in as if he had walked out a free man and now was like willingly going back. That's that's not what this really was. He was manipulated and pushed and used by Olivia. And so him going back to me just feels like him saying, I have to finish this out. Like I have to I, I have to face the consequences for everything that I did and all the choices that I made. And only then will I feel like I can move forward in this world. So it's sad to me, but, you know, we've seen this in many other stories from, I don't know, Da Vinci Code with like the self-flagellation kind of stuff to just feeling like you can't move forward. You can't finish off this part of the story without having true remorse. And and, and some of that is just time, you know, like you're, the time is taken away from you. You have to just sit there and dwell on what you did. I, I imagine he would be a very different prisoner, though, on the second half. I mean, I said to Joey, jokingly, I hope he he goes back. I hope he eats. I hope he doesn't choose to go back into that same place. He indicated he thought he would eat and thought he would be more of that type of prisoner. Are you remembering it the same way? I, I agree. No, I think he's going to become much more like an Andy Dufresne kind of prisoner. You know, yes, he, he's yes. going to he's going because I, I think they're I think like the trial and the gas leak and putting that together and using his mind. The same conversation he had with with why Jimmy wanted to hire him when they were down at the uh, Baxter District groundbreaking. There's a part of Michael that likes the legal aspect of being a lawyer. He likes the opportunity to do good things because they're good things. That's why his trials took so long, right? That's why, remember, his old boss used to ride him that he was the slowest of all the judges in all of the city because Michael takes that responsibility of making sure honor is doled out and the truth is found seriously. So with a guy who's no longer on a quest to kill himself, Michael's going to have to do something. There's a lot of day, a lot of long hours in prison if you're not actively trying to kill yourself. So I see him very much becoming someone who remember he was in the he was in the elevator in season one and the two kids are talking to behind him about like a drug, like a like a petty drug charge that they have. And yeah. he turns around completely unsolicited and tells them how to get out of it with the judge that they have and stuff like mm -hmm. that's who Michael is. So I see Michael doing that kind of work now. In prison, he's going to become someone who helps maybe with appeals or like the Innocence Project kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I that, can see that. That feels very like on brand. And again, in our fictional season three, the one of the sticking points was Brian Cranston didn't appear to want to do the series, I guess, 
again, at least in a full committed way. But it would be interesting if we got in the side with him off the board in prison. They very easily can move forward with all of the stories happening in the city without him. Right. It, it explains why he's not in the show. But it would be an awesome aside or even a, a flash to it periodically where we see him doing that kind of work in prison, because that feels very much in his wheelhouse and very much on brand for him. I agree. I, I I still think, though, like it would have to be years in the future. I, I think that the man that we have going back into prison is not this like no. pulled together, you know, no, ready messy. to do Very anything messy. like he, he still has like a whole lot of healing to do, which I just think it almost doesn't matter where he is. It doesn't matter if he's sleeping in the pantry at Senator Grandma's or if he's in the prison like he is a prisoner in his own head and his own heart. So his physical environment doesn't matter. So him going back into the prison is not the tragedy that many of us look at. We wouldn't say, oh my God, that's so sad. He's losing his freedom. His freedom was gone when Adam died. And as this story has gone on, he has just lost more and more of his humanity. So for me, he, he, he's a prisoner no matter where he is. So he has to get to this point where he can heal enough to maybe, I would love to see him Shawshank the situation and be a helpful, productive prisoner who can actually help other people in there. But that's, I still think, a long way down the road. Let's hit some of the big item wrap-up questions that we have. One, are you disappointed that we did not get the 11th hour Franny reemergence to tell Fia the truth about Adam? I was devastated personally. Tell me, you were devastated? Only because I had talked about it so much. I thought for sure I was on to something that Franny was going to come out of nowhere and be like, Fia, I'm also pregnant with Adam's baby. Oh my God. But she wouldn't have actually been, but then would have been like, ah, he killed your brother. Like, I, you know, I, in my head, I had, maybe I'll just write fan fiction about it. Uh, you know, about like Franny's 11th hour reemergence. It's going to be a lot of like perverted sex scenes. I know. It's going to be extremely dirty. It's all priest all the time. Bear butts and priests. I was rewatching. I was rewatching the first episode. And I, I had forgotten. I had forgotten that we had like a really lingering shot on Hunter yes. Hunter Duhan's uh, wonderful tuchus. So, behind, yeah. Yes. So uh, it was good all for, behind yeah, all the time. Good on Hunter for that. Um, yeah. So yeah. So no Franny reemerges. Obviously, I'm joking about that. Though I do think that would have been an interesting plot twist had it come to fruition. But here's my real question: Does it bother you that Gina and Big Mo face no comeuppance at the end of the day? No, because I think that they actually have lost a whole lot. Just the fact that they're not crying in their in their pillows is making you besides her son, um, her marriage, her daughter, her grandson, her father. <laughs> a lot. Do you think she, she cares about any of that beyond beyond? It doesn't beyond matter. We we don't have to. We don't Adam, have to. Uh, put, Rocco. We don't have to put like a like an actual like value on that. I think she lost a lot. And I think that Big Mo lost a lot. She lost a lot of her gang. She lost a lot of commitment to her group. She lost her her girlfriend or fiance and, and um you know I but, I but think through that her own choices though. Big Mo this especially was through everyone's choices. Every single thing was through someone's mm-hmm. choice. I think there are direct choices and I think there are unintended consequence choices. I feel like Big Mo everything Big Mo lost was as a result of a direct choice that she made mm. well i don't know i, I mean, have no I, I have no sympathy for big mo i see where you're okay. talking about. i i pre, i have sympathy for gina for the loss of her son and i'm willing to say that's enough to make anyone go a little bit of crazy in how we grieve but i think most of what you're saying gina lost gina chose to lose i think big mo 
is directly responsible for all of the loss that she suffered. I have no sympathy for them. I think it's realistic that they don't have comeuppance because I think the bad guy, the bad person wins more times than not in real life. So narratively, it makes sense to me. But personally, fucking hate it. I hate that they're both alive at the end of this. I think they're like two of the worst people in the show, villain-wise. But narratively, I think it makes a lot of sense and it feels right to me that they are both standing tall because, again, the bad person, the villain, often wins in real life. Shitty corporations win. Shitty people get ahead because they don't adhere to a code or rules of society. They do what they want in their own way and, and, and fuck, fuck other people and fuck the consequences. They do what they want and that allows them to get ahead. I think that's very real. So this narratively makes sense to me on a personal level. It drives me crazy. Interesting. So I don't, I don't know that I subscribe to that, but I do think that it's an interesting conversation to point back to Fia talking with the priest about her saying, I know there's a God because I'm positive there's a devil. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm hearing in the things that you're saying. I'm, I don't know that I agree with you that the bad guys always win or that, or that. Not always. I said often, but yeah. I don't know that I agree with you, um, but I, because I think that they have to sacrifice parts of their soul and parts of who they are and their humanity. And so at the end of the day, even if someone's standing on the top of the hill, if they're a husk of themselves, I don't think you want anything. I think you're standing at the top, but I think you're just a paper tiger up there. Um, so I don't I don't feel like that that's necessarily the truth. But I I do think that. In this world, at least where we stand right this second, that conversation about, you know, the devils certainly too seem to be running the show um, is absolutely fact. That's where we are in the story currently. And you're right. I mean, it's it's often when we talk about like politics, like the person who wants to get absolutely roasted in the public media tend to not be the people who, who are the nicest, best people for the job. It's just because they don't have the stomach to be put through the ringer the way that other people do. And so we end up with people in power who can handle sort of like the the being like chewn up and spit out, which tends to harden them and make them this more devilish, villainish, you know, type character, because that's just that's what it took to get there. You know, yeah. like they were forged in the fire to get there. And, and so make, right? it is. But I but I kind of feel like like. Like, did Gina really have the, no, we could say, of course she had the choice. She didn't have to be the leader of the family, right? She could have just taken a back seat and accepted it. But that's what it would have taken in order for her to not be the villain. And so it's hard because it's like, should everyone have to sit back all the time and be right. set of quote unquote, the good guy and finish last? Yes, you're 100% right. It's all subjective. I, I'm calling her the villain, but to her, I mean, we all have the drive. She, she we all what she had to do. Right. We all have the drive to be our most real, authentic self, to achieve that which we are meant to achieve. Now, I see her as the villain from her point of view and people who work from her, from her father. I, I'm sure her father's not happy about being in jail, but I'm sure there's a part of him that appreciates the game and manipulation that she engaged in that led him there. There's, I'm sure, some fatherly and, and mafioso pride about that. I'm sure Carlo looks at her as like someone to, to respect and appreciate the, the moves that were made, you know? So yes, it's all subjective and she absolutely did 
did the thing that she was meant to. She did the thing she had to do to achieve the person that she knew she could be. She knew she could and and from her point of view should be the leader of this crime family. And she made it happen. So, yes, she absolutely is. And Big Mo made the decision to not be a club owner with a girlfriend who sings in it, but to double down as the leader of desire until she chooses not to be of her own choosing, not because there's a coup d'etat uh, led by, you know, Chris. These are the choices they made to be their most authentic selves from their point of view. I, I subjectively, I see them as the villains, but that's again, that's just my point of view. There's like, what is like, what is that? Because, because to me, I felt like I, when we started the story, you weren't like, oh, here's Jimmy Baxter, the villain. Here's whatever the villain. Like, I don't know if we necessarily put them in those categories. Like, I don't know that we did. We were like, ooh, this is, you know, th- this is the, the opposition to the Adam story. You know, we have this, but, but it's interesting that at the end of the day, that any anybody is called the villain because this is supposed to be sort of it's it's not meant to be like comic book story right it's meant to be more real life more like how far would you go and what would you do and coming back to the conti story think about what dad was willing to do for gina you know this is a very what is michael willing to do for adam you know like here we have you know dad coming in and having gina say like our family's falling apart what was dad willing to do to keep his family together there is so much similarity you know and yet some are being sort of hailed as like the villain and some is more like the you know well you did what you had to do kind of thing i think there are let me see i I, other than eugene i think there are few innocents or remotely innocent in this and eugene obviously is not a complete innocent because he killed a person you're right to say villain is too sloppy a word the line there's no black or white here it's all too gray you know what would i do to avenge my son's death maybe there's a world where i take the steps that gina took but objectively objectively it was gina's plan to blow up and kill all of the joneses except for Eugene, because he didn't happen to be home. It was Gina who told Carlo to kill Kofi. All of that is on Gina. Gina mm-hmm. did that. Gina is a villain to me for making those decisions. She is she is the bad guy, bad person for making those decisions. The way I'm looking at I mean, the way I'm looking at it, I think, I, I, yes, villain is not the right word, but she's faced no comeuppance for those decisions there's been no nothing but success at the end of the day for her for killing famali and all those little kids for kofi dying she is Mm -hmm. now the most powerful woman in the city as a result of those decisions and those deaths that's what i'm talking about when i say comeuppance big mo got sloppy running her drugs and taking her eye off the ball of what Desire was doing and how they were going about their business. And Chris's little brother is now dead. Now, she says that's Chris's fault. Sure, of course, Chris plays a part in it. He was a member of this gang and put his little brother in harm's way. But as the leader of Desire, Big Mo has to take responsibility for any deaths that happen in Desire, for for selling tainted drugs cut with fentanyl that's on her she was rewarded at the end of the series by having even a larger playground to push her drugs that's not good at the end of the day where we're ending up with where these characters are on the chessboard these two faced little comeuppance for the things that they did or or indirectly caused 
But I think that's just where we are in the story. Like we, we, you know, we hit pause on this story. That's the cool thing about this. Like this can, you know, we can, we can turn the page and start the next chapter. Like right now in this part of the story that these two women happen to be on top. And so we can call them that, but I don't, but if you had picked a different chapter, you would pick other people to be the villains. So I'm, all I'm saying is like, I think that whoever's on top is going to seem like the villain at the time, but it changes as you go because everybody has their reasons. Everybody had their intentions. You kind of have to let it play out. If there was a season three, we might find that Gina and Big Mo have the biggest consequences. You know, like we we don't know yet who will because it's like the, at the end well, of the day. I, you know? That's why I asked as this, at the end of the story, are you, does it bother you that they didn't face any comeuppance? I am in the place right now, especially when you have the Jimmy eyes open, that we're not at the end of the story. And even if it just takes fanfic or whatever to do it, like they're telling us the story's not over. You know, when you have Big Mo put her sunglasses on and walk into the sunset, you're you're saying to me, more's happening. For me, I don't, I'm not ready to like label them as anything because we don't know what they'll be like as leaders. We don't know what they'll choose to do. I think we can have a guess that Gina is going to be super selfish about everything she does. But I'm kind of curious how, how would a Gina-led Baxter Hotel and Baxter everything look. You know, I wish we had the season three because I would love to see if she would make the same choices. Would she be in Charlie's office trying to be making these same deals or would she take the family in a completely different direction? I don't know, which makes me feel like it's too early to call their reigns, you know, as what they are yet. Most especially Gina's because she hasn't done anything really yet. You know, she leaned on things happening. Well, I mean, she orchestrated her husband being shot and her father going to jail for it. She could have picked up a gun and killed Jimmy. She could have yeah, called Olivia. Work. She could. Oh, no, of course not. But, uh, but but you're acting like she didn't do anything. Like she is directly responsible no, 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 for no, both no, of no. those things happening. No, I mean, OK, then the coronation happens. She gets the crown on her head. She hasn't done anything yet. Oh, oh yes. Since I'm the saying crown is in on her, her yes. reign, yes. she hasn't okay. done anything yet. So I don't know what to call her leadership yet because we haven't seen her in a truly leadership form. Manipulating others, yeah, we've seen her do that. But I haven't seen her be the boss and make the decisions. And maybe without people leaning on her or her having to not go behind people's backs, maybe her decisions and the things that she calls to happen are more sound than you think they would be. We don't know yet because she's always had to kind of do it behind these men. How about Carlo? Killer of Kofi, smug, unrepentant, even strapped into his upside down car, still still enthusiastically threatening and trying to kill Eugene. Yeah, he's a scene. <laughs> he's a scene all day. No come up and though. Take it off the side. He's 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 infinitely more powerful at the end of this episode than he has been at any other part in the story. But doesn't every part of you tell you that as this story comes out, he will be someone who is treated like toilet paper? Like he is so disposable and will end up yes, he's like a cockroach right now and he will continue to like, you know, school just run around in the dark kind of thing i don't see that i i because because the you only way i don't you don't see him ever getting uh, killed or anything uh, ever happening to him no i think I, because the only one who ever really had faith and and belief in him is his the only person he answers to now his mother i think he's going to have uber protection and a free hand to do what he wants oh, i think he can do what he wants but there's still the cops and there's still other people with guns it's it's not i'm not saying that he gets to like he doesn't have like a you know like a 
force field around him. You know, like, I mean, yeah, his mother is going to protect him as much as she can. If we know anything about stories, it's that there's patterns to stories and they're cyclical. So we actually have a parent here with a kid who likely Gina is going to get into a similar situation where she has to do something to save Carlo. I mean, that's a very logical next step is that she would be put in the position that she has been judging Jimmy and Michael on this entire time and that she's going to have to sacrifice something and have to be the one to take the consequences. Like, that's a very logical next step with Carlo being the one that is like, you know, the Adam or the Rocco. Last question before we get to final thoughts on the episode and the series. Is there any question that you had or wanted to know or wanted to resolve at by the end of the 20 hours that did not get resolved? Ooh, that is a very hard one. I actually really feel that Joey Hearthstone did a wonderful job of bringing these stories to a very logical and satisfactory conclusion. I think that the people who are in charge were the people you could see were gunning to be in charge since the beginning. I saw this thing and I don't know how I feel about it. So I'll throw it out to you. Because there's a lot of finales going on in these last couple of weeks, um, people, I saw this line that said, there's no such thing as unanswered questions. There's just unwritten scenes. Ooh, I like that. To that, you're supposed to use your own imagination. Every story can't tell you every single thing that was ever going to happen in all of these people's lives. So as an audience member, like your job in participating in the storytelling is to finish out the story in your own head. And so in that, while there's sometimes when I get kind of pissy about unwritten scenes and I'll be like, hmm, This show has done a wonderful job of being so consistent about taking big moments and not showing them to us. Instead, either just telling us that something happened and we just have to move on from there or whatever. And so in that regard, I think it would be disingenuous at this point for me and you to say there's a bunch of unanswered questions because I think that this story has been consistent in not writing every single scene that happens so we're okay i'm okay with that as an audience member i i dug into this show and it was probably the hardest thing that i went at this show in season one was about the major things that occurred that went happened off scene because Mm -hmm. i think my knee-jerk reaction at the time was that bothered me that those moments if you're going to choose to put certain things on screen certain things not on screen the big moments that you're setting up should always happen on screen so we can see them watching digesting that and rewatching season one getting ready for season two and watching how season two unfolded and talking to joey for sure because we talk about this is that it actually adds an an air of realism to the show and there's a great very smaller albeit smaller but important point to that points in this episode uh when the trial is getting going we hear mention of that there have been like eight witnesses that have testified on uh, during the trial we didn't see any of that we only saw small segments of the trial we saw michael's testimony we saw eugene's testimony that was that was it very limited aspects of the we didn't see eight witnesses talking about we talked about we talked about this last week i think it was or the last episode about how there were like 30 people in that room that will be able to testify someone had to see it they had uh, security cameras someone has to be able to get on the stand be like that's a security camera from the baxter house so uh, we talked about the fact that this trial had to be larger than what we were seeing and they specifically say we've heard from eight witnesses i think it was eight was the number um during this trial you know testifying to this and that i love that because that 
reinforces this idea of we're only allowed to see certain segments of what is happening in this world. But in fact, the world is real and it is going on and it is and and things are transpiring 24 hours a day as the sun sets and then, and then sun rises and then sets again. These lives are ongoing in this city. We get to see certain segments of it, but that doesn't diminish the fact that their lives are still going on even when the cameras aren't showing them. And that kind of world immersion, I love. It was one of the things Westworld did really well. Westworld, because the the way they would come in and out of different parts of the park, you very much felt like you were the camera was rolling in in the middle of a thing. And as soon as the camera left it, it didn't stop. It the thing would continue. Either you know the orgy in uh, the <laughs> one town or what was ever going on in the Mariposa Saloon. Whether the camera was in there or not things were happening. The player piano was playing. And I love that kind of world immersion because it makes me feel very much like this is a real place with real characters, with real lives. And we get to see the certain parts of it that some omniscient person is, is choosing to allow us to see, but that doesn't diminish the fact that it's actually all happening, even if we don't get to see it. Right. And I think that when you and I look back at shows that we cover, whether it be The Gilded Age, whether it be Yellowstone, Maisel, you know, even me watching like Gilmore Girls and stuff like that, all of those things have the same things in common. Often you don't get the wedding. You just get a little blip, you know, or you don't get a birth. You just find out someone was born like stuff like that. It just it just because that's real life. Like you as a human being, as an audience person, don't get to go around and see every single thing that's happening in every single person's life in your world. You hear about it. And and you witness some things, but you don't get to witness everything. And as an audience, I feel like this is the same type of way that they're telling the story. Like, you guys have to remember that these characters feel so real to us. So we're like begging for their backstories and, and their future stories. And we want to know all the way till they're dead. But it's so much more exciting if there's like a little bit of room for us to say, what do we think happened? Like, does Michael go back into prison and journal and write some beautiful book and help you know, parents grieve losing a child or does he kind of put on his lawyer hat and and kind of help everybody through their own legal stuff? Like, we don't know, but we can guess based on his heart and based on what, you know, we know that he wanted to do in his life and what he cared about. So I, for me, this series was super successful. I, I think there is a lot of content here for like some sort of future, you know, mob boss mafia led story i or, think you or could take, new orleans like uh like a larger new orleans yeah, i think activity. you could take gina and big mo and create like this really amazing you know like women-led story about really some tough stuff and mm -hmm. and some gangster biz that's like wow that's that would be amazing to see through women's eyes i think so yeah i think there's stuff here we know that joey has future projects going on already so i don't know what that means for season three but I super have enjoyed this show, and I think that this is the type of show that we need to see more of, where it makes you think, it makes you say, what would you do if you were in the character's shoes? It's just exciting. It's fun. It, it actually makes you think. I, I don't think shows need to go on forever. 
I think shows are fine to run for a limited amount of time and then end if they tell the story that they intended to tell. I don't think a show needs to go on just for the sake of going on as much as a consumer of it and and someone who enjoys a show wants it to go on. We all know when a show goes too long, when it jumps the shark, you end up hate watching that show. And this thing that brought you joy can turn to ash in your mouth really quickly. Now, that being said, I think we have set out here in our discussion today. And I think Joey, when we talked to him, made clear he for sure has ideas on what a season three could look like and going forward. I think we have we have put out what we think would be interesting stories for what a season three would be like going forward. That would be super enjoyable to watch. That being said, if this is it and this is the story, I think your honor and I I think Peter Moffat, we owe a big thanks for him for developing this and adapting this from the Israeli series and bringing this to Showtime and putting this on the air. And then Joey taking over as showrunner and executive producer in season two brought us 20 hours of compelling, gritty television that told in an interesting and seldom seen story on television. It wasn't an easily pegged crime procedural or family drama or or a mafia crime story or anything like that. I think it was a mash of different genres that worked in this city, and, and there are only certain cities where this could really work that have their own kind of heartbeat and pulse, and I think New Orleans is one of those cities. I, I think it told a really interesting story with a very definite beginning, a very definite end to that story, and wonderful, juicy insides that we've gotten to spend average two hours an episode, 20 episodes. <laughs> we've probably spent somewhere between 40 and 60 hours talking about this 20 hours of television. Oh, just talking? No, I I think more than that. I thought you were going to say just watching it over and over. Well, no, I mean, I'm saying straight podcast hours. If we were to add it up somewhere between an hour and a half to this episode is currently running at three and a half hours over 20 hours of television. Obviously, we found something interesting to talk about. I think you guys did, too. Um, thank you for subscribing and listening to us week in and week out for the last you know, two seasons. Thank you to Joey and, and the cast and the crew and Peter Moffat and everyone who made the show happen. They get a show time for airing it. And uh, but really, thank you guys for listening and for making this a high-ranked rank, podcast when the series was on. Thank you for the comments. Thank you for the Facebook group participation. Uh, I feel very lucky to have worked on this. Uh, and thank you, Caroline, for always being the best partner in uh, in the business. So I, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I very much appreciated talking about this with you because I think that we have really similar views on the things we would do for our kids. And this was one of those ones that just got to me. I was like, what would I do? And man, when I find a show like that, that's got a hook that just sinks into my heart. I want to just consume it like unbelievably hard. So this is Caroline. And this is Mike. But before I do my spiel, Caroline, I know I know you yes. have to go. I have one thing I meant to play two hours ago that I'm going to okay. play now and then I'm going to do my spiel. This is the transcript that Lee and Eugene read in the courthouse during Eugene's testimony, which is a transcript of Famali's trial. Then I'm going to play the scene from episode one of season one, where much younger Benjamin Flores Jr. playing Eugene says the words and has the conversation with Michael that they're reading the transcript back, just so we can all check how kind of faithful they were to uh, to what happened actually way back in episode one. I went and pulled the, pulled the audio, so I want to play it here, just because I think it's an interesting detail and a nice bookend to end the series finale. So I'm going to play that now, and then uh, I'm going to come back and give you the little spiel. What did you eat for breakfast, Eugene? 
We had some pickle juice. I fry sometimes when we helped out. And who helps you out? My older brother sometimes. You had to survive on pickle juice and hot fries. Well, whatever was around. We had cereal too. Eggs, bacon. No, none of that stuff. What's your name? Eugene. Eugene, where's your father? Busy. With what? Side girlfriend. Sells some shit up on Rampart. When's the last time you saw him? What did you eat for breakfast, Eugene? Uh, we had some pickle juice. High fries sometimes when we helped out. And who helps you out? My older brother sometimes. He's affiliated. Thank you, Eugene. You may sit back down. It was pretty close, pretty close. I, I didn't capture all of the uh, transcript in uh, the Lee Eugene, but it starts out the same thing. What's your name? Eugene. Uh, and it goes into it. Really interesting. Uh, I like the side girlfriend. They omitted the uh, selling shit up and rampart part. But uh, anyway, guys, thanks for listening so much to uh, Tales from Yaya's. If you wouldn't mind heading over to rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It helps us. Fi- it helps people find this show. It helps uh, Apple, uh, Spotify promote the show and while you're there go subscribe to all of the pod pod clubhouse shows uh we cover a ton of different shows and topics and we're always looking for new ideas so if there's a show you want us to cover drop us a line you can find us on twitter instagram facebook all at pod clubhouse or just send us an email at uh, press at podclubhouse.com. we'd love to hear from you again thank you guys so much for listening and uh this is mike and we'll talk to you soon thanks for listening thank you for listening this has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.